you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. There's no identifiable origin for the expression, not everything is as it seems. That phrase reminds us that our perception is just that, perception. A word Merriam-Webster's online dictionary defines as physical sensation interpreted in the light of experience. Light of experience. Isn't it interesting that they chose the word light there? Tonight's story is about light and what it reveals in the darkness. Perception, at least this definition of it, is limited by our physical senses. But who among us believes that nothing lies beyond what humans can perceive without our particular senses? You'd have to be foolish to think that. Even in the animal kingdom, there are many species whose physical senses far supersede ours. An eagle can see eight times farther than a human. An owl has a 270-degree range of vision. Imagine if we had either one of those attributes. How different would the world seem to us? There are other senses, however. They're not physical, but even the most rational people will tell you that you ignore them at your peril. Your gut instinct, for example, the one that warns you of danger even though you can't readily identify any. The hunch that something is watching you and the notion of whether or not it has good or bad intentions. Science has a hard time explaining how those instincts work, but they have proven that they do. Research indicates instincts can be far more reliable than the information we acquire from taste, touch, sight, sound, and feeling, especially when it comes to the most critical instinct we all possess, the survival instinct. It's easy to identify something you see or hear, but it's much harder to quantify a feeling. A feeling of terror, sometimes made worse by temporary physical paralysis, or maybe an inability to rouse a sleeping partner at your side. That's what Carolyn Perrone experienced over and over at her farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island. What caused that and why? Tonight, we'll look at that question and others as we attempt to not only determine what might be the source of this haunting, but whether or not historical connections to our earthly plane are even relevant in identifying it. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John chapter 1, verse 5 of the King James Version of the Bible. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the true story behind the Perone family haunting that inspired The Conjuring. And we're back. That we are, folks. Uh, for for everyone who didn't listen past the credits of the True Story Behind the Conjuring Part 1, you missed a great track by my friends in the band Pants, a track called Antiquing. 
<laughs> and for those of you who did listen past the end credits of the last episode, uh, you're welcome. Wait, wait a second. Was that were they wearing band pants like in marching band in high school? No, it's or the band. They... The band is called Pants. Oh, okay, the name of the band is called Pants. Yes, it well, is. I really do like that. It's off an album that's a, an opera about pants, actually. So. <laughs> Well, of course it is. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, in other news, uh, we wanted to say a very heartfelt thank you to all of you supporting us on Patreon. It really does help us keep everything running smoothly, and we were thrilled to be able to post almost four hours of bonus video content there a few days ago, including a long overdue roundtable chat with our friend Seth Breedlove from Small Town Monsters, as well as our good friend Mothman Prophecy's screenwriter and ongoing TV writer and producer, Richard Adam. Uh, you're just plugging that because uh, we were talking about one of Seth's newer films, he makes so many of them these days, called Mothman Legacy, which of course stars you as a talking head or <laughs> expert or, or whatever you are. My head was talking, but none of it was any expert talk. So I'll just <laughs> warn people about that. But yes, I am in it. Yes, and we also posted a nearly two hour behind the scenes video of our recent roundtable with Graveyard Tales uh, with Adam and Matt. They were in the driver's seat on that one. It was their idea, but they were gracious enough to share the video of the session with us so we could share it with our patrons. So if you are a patron at the $5 and above tier and you haven't been over to Patreon in a while, check those vids out. And if you aren't a patron, now's the time. Head on over to patreon.com slash astonishinglegends and sign up. All patrons get access to commercial-free versions of upcoming shows, sometimes early when we can swing it, which may be just an hour or two, <laughs> but they, you still get them ahead of time. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, and patrons at higher levels get discounts on merch, as well as access to additional bonus content. And on top of that, we're about to overhaul everything there, so now's a really good time to join. And finally, if you're jonesing for content from us during our dark weeks, look for us on the live audio app Fireside, which is still in beta right now for iOS, but should be going public soon and available later on Android. Android. In the meanwhile, you can listen to any of our chats live or after they've been recorded online at firesidechat.com slash Scott Philbrook or firesidechat.com slash Forrest Burgess. Whenever we're about to go up there, we will post it on social media. So if you're following us on Twitter or Facebook or uh, sometimes Instagram, it's harder to post it there. We'll let you know if we're going on there. So keep an eye on those platforms. But we've mm -hmm. had several hours of interactive conversations over there already, and, and they follow a more free-flowing format. So uh, check it out. And finally, we are planning a meetup for Saturday, August 7th in Nashville, Tennessee. But we still don't have a venue yet, right, Scott? Uh, not yet, but we are working on it. We're talking to a lot of folks. I'm optimistic it's going to work out. And thanks to those of you who actually emailed us with some options. We're, we're working on all of it now, and I guess there's still a small chance it could fall through, but hopefully it won't. Mm. And we wanted people to be able to put it on their calendars just in case. So that's August 7th in Nashville, Tennessee. We're going to be in town anyway for Podcast Movement, which is a, um, a convention dedicated to uh, the business of podcasting. So uh, mm. we will know for sure if it's happening or not by our next episode. So we're going to keep you posted. All right. This is one hell of a wrap up on the true story behind The Conjuring tonight. So let's get down to business. So two weeks ago, with the aid of Andrea Perone's book, House of Darkness, House of Light, The True Story, Volume 1, published by Author House in 2011, we, we took you behind the scenes of the story that inspired the very first of the Conjuring movie series. Uh, we talked about how Andrea's four sisters and her parents, Carolyn and Roger, moved to a seemingly idyllic farmhouse in the country after a chain of oppressive events unfolded for them at their home in Cumberland, Rhode Island. 
This house, we talked about how it seemed like it was meant for them. She was the only one who answered the ad for it. She called about it, Carolyn, her uh, Andrea's mom. The first day the ad was placed, went out and wound up making a deposit right away because she fell in love with it. There was this kindly old man there, Mr. Kenyon. He was very sweet. He had candy in his pockets for the kids. It was 200 acres. It was just amazing. It was $75,000. But It took five or six months for them to get in there. They had to do a lot of things to save their money up and get into the house. But then things started happening almost as soon as they settled in. Very little things. And this is just recap information, just reminding you because it was a couple weeks ago. Uh, They had problems with the clock. That was a family heirloom that they had that was, uh, it was stopping and starting and working sporadically. They actually got to a point after a while where they just stopped messing with it. And sometimes it would Mm. be working and sometimes it wouldn't. But at that point, I don't think it ever had the right time. Well, at least it's right twice a day. (laughs) Unless it keeps moving. Unless it keeps moving. uh, Maybe once a day in this case. They also had a strange issue with flies. And Mm -hmm. there were two components to this. One was the flies themselves, which we're going to talk about in a minute because we got some really amazing emails about the the flies. And Interesting. I, I've yeah. picked some fun ones to share. But the other component of the flies was the psychological aspect of it for the dad, for Roger. He became almost darkly obsessed with killing them yeah. and uh, was getting short with his family and hanging fly swatters in every room. Of course, this can happen in any scenario. You could get upset about flies. So you, you got to take some of that with a grain of salt. But it, it did seem like it had turned into a something that wasn't quite right. And mm-hmm. not too long after that, we have, uh, well, actually, I don't know if it was after that because the book doesn't present itself chronologically. But at some point, Andrea's sister, Cynthia, who goes by Cindy, actually passed through an apparition on her way, uh, trying to get through the house on her way out to the bus. And it sapped her strength so bad, she was sick for a couple of days. We talked about the chalkboard that they had been using to do their own self-guided version of homeschooling. It kept getting erased and smeared. So they they had their dad, Roger, help them move it out to the woodshed where it was fine for a while. They thought they had solved the problem. Then it wound up smashed literally to smithereens one day. Oak chalkboard with slate, all of it smashed into tiny pieces. Yeah. We told you about the hand scythe in the barn that was spinning in the air and came down and attacked Carolyn. And if she hadn't been wearing like leather and wool, it would have cut her. Mm-hmm. Some people call it a Kaiser blade. I call it a sling blade. No, please don't. That okay, joke is, it's, it's already 20 years. Was it 20 years old? 25? <laughs> it's still a no great line. No one remembers that movie. No one has any idea what you're talking Billy about. Billy Bob Thornton. Well, yes, that's what you have to say now, but I'm yeah, just saying. Mustard's good too. Yeah, that was his first movie, but it's, it is literally vanished from the zeitgeist. You can't even get it on a platform. No, the reason I, I brought that up is that it, that's what a Kaiser blade is. That's of, true. Of a that's sort, true. of a sort. So people, uh, yes, we were trying to explain this before. And when you first told me, it's like, what do you mean like a full-on size? No, uh, like the one uh, I have in my know, attic. No, it's not a like A Grim that. Reaper sized, because yeah. that's crazy. But this is still pretty wild that this yeah. thing came spinning down and uh, hit her across the uh, shoulder. Yes, right. Okay. Uh, There was also another attack on her where she was violently struck repeatedly by some invisible force wielding a coat hanger as she was getting dressed after getting out of the shower to greet a house guest who also witnessed that event. And then uh, the final kind of the biggie that we talked about in part one was when she was visited by a grotesque being floating over her bed, seemingly paralyzing her husband, Roger, and it had the appearance of a broken neck disappearing only after she uttered the phrase, God help me. That, by the way, occurred at 5.15 in the morning. Now, I know I said in part one that specific times on the clock stopping were not consistent. And according to uh, Andrea's book, I think that's true. It seems as though it stopped and started at random times. But remember that this particular incident began at 5.15 a.m. 
and they found the clock had stopped then as well, because that's going to come back up later. So you think there's a correlation between that appearance or intrusion or um, event, yes. that paranormal event, and somehow that stopping the clock, some yes. kind of energy or something stopping the clock. Okay. Yes, it would seem that way. And this stuff, all this stuff we just mentioned, that's only a few of the things that took place in the house. Andrea made it clear that a lot more happened than there are documented in the book. And in addition to that, there's, of course, more in the book than we're sharing. In fact, so much constantly went on that they employed a phrase Mr. Kenyon had told them about the peccadillos mm-hmm. of the house shortly before he vacated it. He just said, quote, you get used to it, end quote. <laughs> So they would jokingly say that, at least Andrea did in her book. But uh, Carolyn Mm -hmm. never really did get used to it, even if the girls somehow seemed to cope over time. Well, it was a different experience for the girls in that, yeah, sometimes it was really scary, and then sometimes it was just fascinating and mind-blowing in that you started to realize for them, they then had tangible proof that there's an afterlife, that you don't really die. Now, we're going to talk about that philosophically as we start to get into the analysis of the details of the story. But for them, it was different. And they realized that their mother felt attacked. So it wasn't great for her. She felt the focus of negative energy. And so, yeah, for her, it wasn't great. But at least for Andrea and some of the other daughters, it was a very profound, maybe the most profound moment of their lives. Yeah, that's well said. And and they have a lot of very, very positive memories about living there too, which is what she says in, uh, with, mm-hmm. in her interview with Jim. Well, the other thing that we need to talk about is how we closed out part one of this series. Uh, we were talking about uh, one of the most startling things in the book, and it was never addressed. This dog that was <laughs> supposedly named Bathsheba six or more months before they even encountered the idea of Bathsheba Sherman in Harrisville, that they, like, that they named that dog that while they were living in Cumberland, mm-hmm. then moved out to the house, then went through all this, and then deduced that this Bathsheba Sherman was the spirit that was haunting them. Now, what are the statistical odds of that happening? Is that like some kind of real-world foreshadowing, or did it dictate what was going to manifest and happen to them later? We have a lot to say about that mm-hmm. tonight. Now, there's a theme here with this story that's about perspective. We're dealing with a series of events that all seem to be connected. Bathsheba the dog, horrifically killed in a tragic accident, I'll remind you. The ghost with the broken neck, taunting Carolyn Perone. The woman who hanged herself in the barn on the property, not the tree from the movie. Note, Mm, also apparently it wasn't the barn either. More on that later. But we got to talk about who these spirits might represent and even the idea of trying to figure that out. But before we do that... Let's talk flies. Oh, flies are a classic part of any horror movie nowadays. Amityville. Yes. Anything with priests and demons. uh, Frogs are big as well, but there's always got to be flies because I guess you could see them as representative of the the underworld, of Beelzebub. Those are his pests. One of my favorite things now about the fact that we're bi-weekly as opposed to the more intense schedule that we had Mm -hmm. last year is that it allows time for you guys, listeners, to chime in on things and to send us emails. And then we actually have time to read them and incorporate them into the next episode. No, that's a good point because uh, this is also a very interactive show. Of course, we don't have time to respond to all the ones we get, but we do try and read them and we get some great insights on a lot of things we're talking about. But the only way to do that, if we had it, if we're changing a topic every week is that we'd have to announce what we're talking about and all the different uh, bullet points. And then people would have time to respond before we actually incorporated it in the show. Yeah, exactly. At least with two parters, 
people get a chance to at least address some points before we finish it up? Well, we got around a dozen emails on flies and they, and they yeah. were all great, but I've set a few aside here to share with the rest of you because I think they tell compelling stories all on their own. Now we're going to run down through them. They, these three emails go from basic prevention to a professional viewpoint and finally one that might shake you a bit. I'll read the first two here, and Forrest, I'll let mm-hmm. you read the last, the, the more dramatic one. Here's, right, here's the first one. This is from Matthew Sadie. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I did email him back and ask mm-hmm. him how to pronounce it. Let me just check that inbox real quick. And don't think he wrote me back. So, Matthew, you have to go with however I said it. Here we go. Hello. I just listened to the true story behind The Conjuring, part one. Like Amityville, the presence of flies in the house seems to be a common thread. I lived in mm-hmm. an old farmhouse in Virginia. I know it was around since at least 1907, but suspect based on some research that it may have been a Civil War era home. The house wasn't haunted, but we had flies. Thousands upon thousands would gather around windows in a room that seemed to have no way for them in. I sealed around the trim board, around the windows themselves, and any other holes I could find, yet they would still get in. I finally managed to stop them once I pulled the window trim off and sealed inside the window frame itself. The windows had been replaced, but the old weights and tracks were still in place, which left all sorts of space to get in. Like most homes built back then, the only thing between the inside, plaster walls, and the outside was the clapboard, which leaves tons of cracks and openings for flies to get into a farmhouse. I used to have to spray the outside due to the number of flies that would sit on the clapboards, especially in the morning when the sun warmed up the wood. We had flies both during the winter as well as during the warmer months. Love your podcast. Thank you, Matthew, for sending that in. I thought that was interesting mm-hmm. and a really good point. And I actually forgot about those older windows with weights. My great-grandparents yeah. had those in their house. And uh, the office I worked at in um, Soho in New York City had those too. Mm-hmm. And the weights are – there's weights in there that help you because the windows are big and heavy. Without the weights, they're very hard to lift because they're big. So even if you take that out and put in a more modern or a lighter window, that still yeah. leaves a lot of gaps. So that's, you know, it's a valid point. I don't know if that's what was happening in the Perone house, but it's a nice perspective on maybe a, a yeah. more rational reason as to where the flies were coming from. And he's also saying, hey, they were here year round. Good points all around. Weirdly, if you've ever installed a window or seen it done, you think there'd be more holding it in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I was a kid, I saw it installed, like there's some shims. It's really just kind of sitting in there and then uh, walled off uh, front and back so it doesn't fall out. Yeah. But it's not that stable, at least some of the windows I saw being uh, having installed them. So there you go. This next email comes from Ethan Klopfenstein, and uh, his, his subject line said, mystery solved, the flies at least, maybe, which mm, uh, this is mm-hmm. a great email. Listen to this. As a pest control professional, my interest was piqued by the flies mentioned in part one of the Conjuring series. It was mentioned that the pest control folks couldn't find the source for the flies. This is an issue that sometimes comes up. Sometimes there is no source, he says in quotes. Obviously, I'm going on very little information as the flies are not the point. That would be the ghosts. The flies may have been cluster flies, which are a seasonal pest that sometimes enters homes before the soil is warm enough for them to harass earthworms. Or they may have been drain flies or forid flies. That's P-H-O-R-I-D. These can Mm -hmm. come from an invisible source. I just had a client who had a crack in their sewer main underneath the foundation of their home. The sewage leaks out, contaminates the soil, and creates a perfect breeding environment for the flies. Uh, You've made a point in this episode to not lump everything in with the paranormal, especially if you think there is a normal explanation, like when we talked about the cat. 
Mm-hmm. Just thought you guys might be interested in a possible explanation for the flies. I'm not a psychologist, so the obsession with the flies is beyond me. It does happen, though. A lady in Florida shot her boyfriend because he kept bringing bed bugs to her house. Thank you, Ethan, yeah. by the way, for that colorful <laughs> and wonderful email and your expertise. It's nice to have that in the mix here. Yeah. So uh, this third email, though, I particularly enjoyed and found kind of striking. So Forrest, I thought you might share this one with our listeners. This is our last email about the flies, and then we'll get back on topic here, but I did enjoy this email. Well, this email comes to us from Cody Sneed, and it goes a little like this. I felt the need to share this story after listening to part one of the Conjuring episode. I've worked in a mental behavioral hospital for almost five years, and I've had a lot of wild experiences, not paranormal, in parentheses, Several years ago, we admitted a teenage patient who was experiencing a severe psychosis, in parentheses here, sadly due to smoking spice, which caused this psychotic episode in many of our younger patients, close parentheses. When he was first admitted, I was his one-to-one staff to ensure his safety, and he believed he was a prophet, often blessing me over and over all the time. And this wasn't bad because he was euphoric. However, Over time, he began to change and became increasingly violent and sexually inappropriate, often at the same time. He eventually had to have two-to-one staff because of how violent and inappropriate he was, and one night, I was told he was sitting in his room, and flies began to randomly show up. The clinical setting was always very clean, and we've never had a problem with pests since I have been there. After the staff witnessed the flies, they said he began calling them to him, and they drew closer. They also said he began playing with them and almost commanding them to come and go, and apparently they obeyed. Evidently, the experience was so strange for the staff, they called other staff to see it as well, from which I heard all secondhand. I was off work that night, thank God. This was the only night that this happened, and he was with us for approximately two months. I thought of the exorcist jokingly, but still never thought of it as a consistent theme in these stories, until you mentioned it in this episode, and it all came rushing back to me. I cannot confirm this experience myself, but I can confirm the staff's reaction to it as genuine. Many of us experienced a little bit of trauma with this patient, and I still have ongoing anxiety when I look back on my experiences with him. Best wishes, Cody. So, pretty interesting. Yeah, we want to thank uh, you, Matthew, Ethan, and Cody, for writing us in, as well as the rest of you who sent something in regarding the flies. We found it fascinating. Some good stuff. I'm saving that for a mailbag show I'm hoping we get to do Mm -hmm. on YouTube eventually, some of those other ones. (laughs) Yeah. What if we just switched and all we talked about was flies on every platform? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we could, and I liked your uh, titling that email, The Fly Master, but I was very surprised you didn't call it Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies, I know. Well, yeah, that's that would have been better. I Too on the nose, yeah. sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that story is really fascinating to me because that's like, and I like that these run the perspective. You know, there's the practical farmhouse mm-hmm. situation, then we have the pest control expert weighing in. And I love that Cody was like, well, nothing paranormal happened. I was like, uh... Well, okay, you weren't there for this, but this is pretty paranormal. <laughs> if he's commanding the flies, that's pretty yeah. amazing. Roger yeah. uh, Perone would have given anything to be able to command those flies. Because he said they were lining up and <laughs> launching sophisticated attacks. Like uh, Tora, Tora, Tora. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pearl Harbor, they're coming in waves. If he has exerted some control, 
That whole situation reminded me of the Ammon boy from Gary, Indiana, that case of possession when he was in the hospital, just people in the hospital seeing weird stuff and some people quitting because they saw the young boy run up the wall in the observation room and onto the ceiling and do a backflip over one of the attendants. Yeah. That's true, according to all the witnesses that were in the room, and that guy left right then, and I'm not sure he ever came back to help those folks. Yeah. So weird stuff is seen by a lot of these first responders, people who work in hospitals. Uh, One of my uncles was a psychiatric nurse for, geez, maybe 30, 40 years, and it's not easy. That energy wears off on you after yeah. a while. And he's seen some crazy things. Yeah. God bless him for working that long there. But he eventually, a lot of people don't last that long because of these the strange things you do see. We have a close friend that does that now as well. In fact, he was the guest host of the very first episode, published episode of Astonishing Legends. <laughs> that's right. Our friend Mark. Yeah. So if you're wondering where he is, that's what he's up to now. We've been trying to reassure our listeners that the light at the end of the pandemic tunnel would come eventually, and I think we're finally seeing it. Yeah, and as the joke goes, hopefully it's not an oncoming train. But in (laughs) all seriousness, the last year and a half really messed a lot of us up. The psychological and emotional collateral can be seen everywhere, on the news, on social media, Mm -hmm. people you know, even in ourselves. Yeah, I mean, just take a look at the latest person losing it on an airplane. You can almost sense the anxiety of humanity in the air. No pun intended. And social media is not a healthy place to find advice and support. In fact, we'd all be wise to cut back on it. Well, a lot of people don't know where to turn to when they need help, and your friends and family can only do so much. Frankly, a lot of people don't know what to do or say when someone tries to tell them about their feelings and what's troubling them deep down. They often get embarrassed Mm -hmm. and just say, "Uh, don't worry, it gets better. Yeah, well, look, they're not professional counselors, usually. And that phrase reminds me of one of my favorite quotes attributed to the late comedian Joan Rivers, which was, listen, I wish I could tell you it gets better, but it doesn't get better. You." get better. Wow, I, I actually really like that. And she's right. And the way that you get better is by getting the professional help you need. And better help is the easy and affordable way to get started. Yeah. And your mental and emotional health is not something you want to ignore and just hope it gets better. Better help will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And they're quick about it. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Better help is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online and available to anyone worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. It's also more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. Best of all, it works. Listen to these therapist reviews just posted today from BetterHelp clients. A.L. writes, I was in a really rough place before finding BetterHelp. I couldn't get in anywhere, and my depression and anxiety were at an all-time high. Gail has helped me so... Greetings from 35,000 feet, somewhere over the great state of Texas. My name is Dana, and thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so we've made a point of this series really being about Andrea Perone's perspective, the Perone family perspective, Mm -hmm. and being based on volume one of her three-volume series. But we can't do this without at least touching on Ed and Lorraine Warren, or the Warrens, who are pretty famous when it comes to paranormal (laughs) investigations. They're both passed away now, and... uh, 
their museum. They, they dealt with Annabelle. They're the root for many of the Conjuring movies. So we're going to talk about their investigation a little bit, but more just about them and how they intersected with this. Now, if you want to know a whole lot more about them, we'd invite you to uh, check out episode 143 of our friends Adam and Matt over at Graveyard Tales, which they posted back in April that's all about the Warrens. Mm-hmm. They really just give them a broad view. They tell you their thoughts at the end of it, which will factor into what we're going to say here. And you can find Graveyard Tales on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcast. So go check that out. Look for their series on that if you want more in-depth background information on the Warrens. But right now we wanted to talk about them, you know, particularly as it overlaps with the Perone family. So, uh, Forrest, you, you dug into this a little bit, right? Right. I've collected a few things, not really formally, not as well as we usually do for our outline, but just really talking points that we can kind of freewheel on here. I thought it would be fun and and maybe not as annoying as I usually am when I'm just kind of freewheeling stuff. So, <laughs> but there's one thing I want to start the discussion off with first, and that is Andrea Perone's recollection of that night that is covered in the movie. So we can clear that up. She talks about that in the Jim Harold interview that we mentioned in part one, where she specifically talks about that night and it being just really traumatic and dramatic. And you can't hardly ever capture that in a movie. But again, she did love the movie. She thought it was very well portrayed. She understands it's a movie. It stands on its own. It doesn't have to relay everything that happened in real life. And as she said, it was 1% of 1% that actually happened during all those years. But the first thing she says is that uh, she wants people to know that the directors or Warner Brothers, nobody ever told her to play down any aspect of her story. They knew that she loved the film and that she would be a very effective spokesperson, as she says, for the film on its behalf. And they never told her, uh, don't talk about this or don't talk about that or... So the first thing that she always tells people is that there was no exorcism in the house. Right. So the scene that you see that night, it wasn't actually an exorcism. She goes on to say, and again, this is from the Jim Harold interview, what Andrea says was, there was a seance that happened in our dining room that went tragically wrong. It was a very bad night. It was the worst, most traumatic event of my life. I saw everything that happened. It's all chronicled in the books. What they portrayed in film is less intense than what actually happened. My mother would never, ever in a million years have done anything to hurt any of her children, and that needs to be made a point immediately. She was not possessed, per se. She was attacked, physically and mentally attacked, that night. And something came into her body that was pure, unadulterated evil, was not of this world spoke a language that does not exist on this planet. Her voice changed inexorably. She was thrown within a split second, levitated and thrown from the dining room into our parlor a good 20 feet in a split second. And whatever came into that home that night, by invitation from a medium who was present at this event, it had all the ability in the world that it ever needed to kill my mother. It didn't want to kill her. It wanted to scare and make its presence known to everyone that was in that room, including Ed and Lorraine Warren, a priest, a medium, an entire technical crew, my father. Everyone that was present saw what power it had. And praying for my mother that night, standing in a hallway, trembling, looking through a two-inch opening gap of a door into that room, I prayed more powerfully that night than I ever have in my life for anyone or anything. 
I begged God to release her from whatever spell she was under that night, and I saw everything that happened, including Ed, trying to stop my father from going to my mother when she was thrown across the room. And Ed grabbed my father's arm, and my father turned around and cold-cocked him right to the floor. And I know that because I cleaned up the blood afterward. He punched him right in the face. It was a very ugly scene. It was terrible. It took more than an hour to get her back while my father was monitoring her vital signs. It was terrible. So they couldn't even represent that in the film, she goes on to say. They were trying to get a PG-13 rating. You have to keep that in mind, too. They couldn't show all the weird, horrible stuff that happens because uh, PG-13, that's a wider audience. That's kind of like what Scott and I do with this podcast. That's why we don't swear. We're trying to get the, the largest, broadest audience Yeah, you should hear us in real life. Yeah. <laughs> think we were possessed. Just as soon as this recording is done, I'm going to be swearing a blue streak. You can guarantee it. So she was saying they didn't show some things that were too scary, too gory, this and that. Because James Wan really wanted that PG-13 rating. And so, as she says, she understands why they're trying to do it. And, and then she was with James when the R rating came. And, he, and she says, he hit the ceiling. He said, I want to know why. There wasn't any gratuitous sex or violence, bad language. You see worse on network television in prime time. And the MPAA uh, said uh, there wasn't anything he could do about it. There was no scene he could remove. It was just too scary. It's going to get an R rating. So, Scott, I wanted to talk about that because I don't think we got to it in part one, but it's an interesting clarification on that night in particular. And here's the deal. A lot of people, I think, or had read something from articles that get passed on and on and over again, that it was the Warrens who let this demonic thing in to the house that night by invitation, and it wasn't. According to Andrea, it was a medium that was there, and she goes on later to say that she thought that was pretty inappropriate or just irresponsible. Right. Uh, because it was during the seance, she invited whatever was there to come on in, and as we know, sometimes it's a bad idea. Yeah. It's yeah. all about permission. You know, usually the mediums I talk to, it's like, yeah, they wouldn't do that, but for whatever reason, this woman thought it was uh, okay, and maybe she was duped. What are you interacting with? What is its real purpose? What's its real identity? What does it want? Are these a bunch of different things happening all at once? And maybe you've mistaken one for another. So that's what went on that night. She invited this thing in. And what happened was Roger Perrone was so concerned for his wife's well-being and her mental stability and emotional stability that he asked the Warrens to leave. So at that point, I think they were disconnected from the investigation. And I don't think they ever came back. But Scott, I know we looked into it, but in volume one of Andrea's books, there's no mention of really the Warren's interaction with their house in this case that much, really. No, it's limited to her saying that investigation was 35 years ago. It's right. not really what I'm here to talk about. And that's it. And she doesn't really go into it at yeah. all. And now I haven't read volumes two and three, so I don't know if she gets into more detail in those volumes. And when you go to the website that their son-in-law runs now on their behalf, mm -hmm. there's very limited information. If you become a patron, right. you can get access to more stuff. So I, I right. actually am having a hard time finding a detailed account of the nature of their investigation there. And yeah. I do have their books, though, and I, I bought two of them, and it's not mentioned in the two that I have. I, there's a third one. I am still looking for 
their point of view of their investigation there outside yeah. of the movie itself. And I, I haven't right. found it yet. So, well, I, I wanted us to talk about this a little bit and you and I haven't discussed it a whole lot mm -hmm. because again, uh, we didn't think it was totally relevant to this case. I know a lot of people want us to talk about the Warrens. Yeah. And what I didn't realize, like, I, I thought, well, they're a cool couple. That's kind of a cool story. They have a, a cool origin story and they, they seem kind of nice and they're very divisive, you yes. could say. Yeah. I didn't realize this until, you know, we posted this episode. We're great friends with Matt and Adam at Graveyard Tales. And I listened to a lot of their shows and I especially listened to the one on the Warrens because we're covering it. And like I said, they did a good overview. They had their own conclusions at the end. And I think they sum it up pretty well, and they're, I think it's pretty rational, and it's acceptable to me. I, I get it. I would say for myself, I'm maybe a little bit more ambivalent, but I wanted to talk to you about why they are so divisive. Yeah, so my take on that is, uh, yeah, it does seem like on what little I know about them, and I have their books, but I haven't right. read them yet, I am actually don't know a ton about them. I mean, of course, I know about Annabelle and the cases that they've been mm -hmm. involved in and whatever, but... They do seem a little bit hair trigger to me. It's a little bit like, well, okay, oh, that okay is... that's a demon. That's a demon. We got yeah. to get out of here. <laughs> okay, we need to do an exorcism. It seems a little bit yeah. uh, grandiose. But, you know, in the movie, they're portrayed as being more practical. You know, you've got carbon monoxide. You've got X, Y, and Z. So right, I'm not right. really sure. But And you and I have talked about this a little bit offline, and I guess we're going to get into that now. But yeah. there is a, a thing that we've seen, even among our contemporaries, with folks who are involved in this realm and trying to make a living at it. Mm -hmm. And that somehow seems to get in the way of their assessment of things sometimes. Well, that's a good point. Y yeah. Maybe this fictionalization comes along because, oh, no, it's like, uh, oh, that's, this book is spooky. Look at this book. <laughs> You know, the guy, the oh, last guy about that a, had a, this book, a, the, um, he yeah. almost got on a plane that crashed. And it's, okay, we need to do an extra. You can escalate all this because none of yeah. this is provable, even in the most real cases. Make a note of that thought, Scott. Okay. Thought, Scott. Because as this whole idea gelled, and, and of course, you carried part two here all by yourself for the most part, and I've just uh, got some thoughts about it as we go along. It's gelling to me that it's all about perspective and points of view depending on who you are. And yes. uh, it's Rashomon, folks. I made it, I was very tired and I said seven samurai. Oh, the, yes, oh, I know. They, <laughs> and I was so tired that I knew you were wrong and I still didn't I know. correct you. It did, it yeah. still, that happens to both of us. It's like, uh, Scott's wrong about yeah. that. We're going to get letters and I just let it happen. Yeah. No, in this case, that's all really what it's about. And when it comes to the Warrens, I have a few thoughts on them. First of all, the paranormal is an eccentric genre. And therefore, a lot of eccentric people are drawn to it. Perhaps ourselves as well. Uh, I resemble that remark. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> You're, well, yeah. I, well, there's a lot of people that, uh, who think this is all humbug who would think we're silly for even looking into this at all. I've become way more eccentric now than I was when we started. I think I was a little yeah. a less eccentric. When, no, you know. you know what it is? I'm less afraid to tell people what I believe in now. Yeah. Because I've seen evidence myself of things that uh, have no rational explanation. Not big things I say, you know, here on the show that I've told people about, but enough that I'm convinced, of course, that some things are real. As far as the Warrens go, and myself having met some other ghost hunters now over the last maybe two or three years, 
and knowing how they operate and knowing some other personalities and hearing stories from people I trust about these various personalities, I think I have a better insight. But I would say with the Warrens is that I'm ambivalent because I would have to get to know them. And that means researching their findings, their case books, what they wrote, what they said, their interviews, getting all that together, but also talking to people that knew them and hearing different points of view, because you're, you're exactly right. Like you said earlier, <laughs> the big knock against the war and so like, well, look at them. They're just making a name for themselves and, uh, you know, selling a bunch of books and uh, frilly tops <laughs> in her yeah. Lorraine Warren's <laughs> line of blouses. And it's like, well, think about it. In those days, they were the big name couple doing this. You didn't really hear about any other couple like that. Certainly, there were parapsychologists working in the field, but this was not a subject that got media-wide attention. So out of anybody that's doing that, people knew the Warrens. And guess what? When you make a bigger deal, and, and, and not saying that they made anything up, I don't know what their perspective was on it or what they personally believed. If they personally believed something, then they believed they weren't making anything up. It may sound outrageous to other people and say like, oh, come on, a 400-pound refrigerator lifted off the ground and crashed down or the TV smashed down on the floor after levitating and nothing was broken. What a bunch of baloney. If they believe it happened, well, then they're not lying. They just sound outrageous. Right. And I also, and again, I'm only done very cursory research on them so far. Right. And, um, and I haven't even heard Matt and Adam's show on it, which I'm actually going to listen to mm -hmm. this weekend. but. The sense that I get just from how much we've encountered them just in the course of this story is right. less that they were faking things and um, more that they may have been overestimating what they were dealing with. But I didn't right. get a sense that they were, speaking of conjuring, that they were conjuring things out of thin air. I didn't get a sense right. that they were involved in untrue stories as much as maybe they were misinterpreting what they were interacting with. That was a little bit of the impression that I got. But I mean, what do I know? I have no training. Well, they, you, know. <laughs> you weren't there. You don't know. I know what I saw. Yeah, they may be conflating things or, or maybe they're given a little, as you would say, zhuzh yeah. to give it some spice and flavor. And, and yeah, you don't want to do that if you're really trying to uh, gather evidence and present that as real proof of ghosts to the unbelieving or uh, agnostic public. But keep a few things in mind as you do, okay? I believe this factoid is still correct in that Ed Warren was the only person, layperson, certified by the Catholic Church to perform exorcisms who, who was not of the clergy. I've heard that a few times. I've not heard anything to negate that. So we'll count that as at least the Catholic Church who does, they're in the business of this for hundreds of years. They at least saw value in what he was doing to grant him that certification, you could say. Because they just don't let anybody or they don't sanction anybody to do an exorcism. And they are very reticent to do it themselves. They have to research the case, get to know the people before they will tackle a situation, which is somewhat relayed in the movies. As you can see, like they didn't get certification in time in, in one of the films. So you could say, look at who we got now. Zach Bagans, as we're going to talk about, uh, his show is very entertaining. Grant. Amy, all the, I'm just putting out first names like everybody knows them. But you know what? If you watch these shows on cable, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Chip Coffee. There's a little bit of show business in all of this, okay? They have to make it entertaining. We've talked about this before, is that you could spend three nights at one place and, and get a couple of creaks and groans. And then you just wasted a couple hundred thousand dollars on production and got nothing. So 
that's part of this, what's going on here. Now, when the Warrens were doing it in the 70s, it's like, well, if you do relay some startling findings and you do make a name for yourself, then people call you. Who are you going to call? You're going to call the Warrens when you want to bust some ghosts. No one else really is doing it. So they got dibs on some of the bigger cases or some of the more uh, profound and scary cases. They got access to that. And that's kind of their business now. So again, look at who we have now doing paranormal research that has a show. And certainly once you have a show, that puts you in a different category. Of course, you're going to write books. And of course, you want to sell those books. People say, well, they're just doing it to sell books. Like, who writes a book who, hoping no one buys it? Also, here's the newsflash. I, I have several friends who are authors. Right. You don't make a lot of money writing books. I mean, no. unless you're Tom Clancy or Stephen King, you're not, you're <laughs> barely making a living writing books. But look at what you're doing here as far as doing these kinds of investigations. And they certainly didn't have a TV show back then. But who do we have now? Probably the people that are doing it seriously, the various ghost hunters, parapsychologists, people who are trying to apply a little bit of scientific method to it. You don't know them because they're not doing anything that's coming out in media. So nobody knows who they are and where the results getting published. Nobody knows or really cares as far as the public goes. When it comes to Ed and Lorraine, that's another knock, is that every little bump, there you go, it's a demon, it's a demon, there you go, that thing, it's a demon, that scratch, demon, right. demon. Which is demon. what they thought in this case, by the way. Right. Well, and they they do that a lot. But again, it's like, okay, I don't know. Look, I, I'm not going to, you know, match wits with what Ed Warren knew because I didn't study it most of my life. I'm not a self-proclaimed demonologist. But he's read a lot more books and had a lot more experiences than I have. So I'm just saying here, I don't know. I would have to really look into this to make some kind of a judgment either way. But let's take a look at what the, uh, let's say their main critics have said about them. And for that, we can go right to the Wikipedia entry on Ed and Lorraine. And I was just going to read this uh, because it's it kind of sums this up. It's under the criticism little section here, right under personal life. Uh, it says Ed and Lorraine Warren were members of the Roman Catholic Church. That certainly colors their perception on things. According to a 1997 interview with the Connecticut Post, Steve Novella, which, side note here, I believe in our... The Great Courses Plus series where we're, we're doing a, an advert for them, a spot. I recommended his lecture series because he talks about critical thinking. And yes. Like, this, is, this is what we need. Yeah. yeah. We're not opposed to that. We need that as balance. We need these tools to look at this. But he's coming from a very specific point of view, Steve Novella. Perhaps, I think as Adam and Matt said on their show, a cynical one where he's pretty much a debunker but he's got the academic chops to back that up and the critical thinking skills. So he and Perry DeAngelis, uh, who I think sadly passed away, who had it, he was a podcaster himself, but also from the skeptical angle, uh, they investigated the Warrens, getting back to the article here, for the New England Skeptical Society, or NESS, another great acronym, N-E-S-S. And they found the couple to be pleasant people, but their claims of demons and ghosts to be, quote, at best, as tellers of meaningless ghost stories, and at worst, dangerous frauds, closed quote. And so I just make a side note here. I, this seems to be a ongoing and uh, pervasive chestnut with a lot of skeptical writers using that, uh, I'm not sure what you call that, not a light motif or a phraseology here, but like, at best, they're this, at worst, they're this. And yeah, yeah. 
My point here is that at the best, it's not really hurting anybody. They're just kooky ghost hunters. And I think with science and the scientific purview is you got to be 100%. You at least got to be like 95, 98, 99% for them to really take you seriously. So you have any big, you miss something like in this case, perhaps Lorraine Warren talking about Bathsheba and maybe not nailing that correctly, but she got that name somehow or was fed that name, perhaps. We'll take a look at that in a minute. And that not being accurate, well, there you go. That's a reason to, to throw the paranormal baby out with a paranormal bathwater. You can now disregard all of this because you got a bunch of major things wrong. So anyway, getting back to this, though, I just find it kind of funny that when people say, on the one hand, they were just useless at best talking about they're just telling goofy ghost stories that aren't true. And at worst, they're actually dangerous. But I seem to see a lot of people who just say like, well, that's dangerous thinking. It's <laughs> We went on Monster Talk ourselves to talk with Blake. Some of the comments in the uh, the Facebook group they have, where it's like, those guys are, what they're saying is dangerous. You remember that? That was actually a comment. Yeah. It's like, that kind of talk is dangerous. It's like, where's the danger? Not, <laughs> I don't... We're not telling yeah. anybody to hurt anybody. Yeah. <laughs> But considering this stuff is dangerous. I'm like, okay, come on. Come on, dude. Just pipe down, Francis. Yeah. Why is it dangerous? Maybe you lost some money buying some of their books and maybe you believe them. Yeah. Hopefully you're not out hurting people because you believe some of this stuff. And if you are, by the way, you'll find some other reason to go do those <laughs> things. It's not because the anyway, Warren said something was yeah, a demon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I am poking fun of that a bit because uh, we had, uh, I kind of got into it a little bit with a guy, you know, on on, uh, on Twitter who, and this is the other thing I, I noticed with people, and I would say that Mark Marcello Truzzi would say this is lazy skepticism. Yeah. This is pseudo-skepticism. That's a real thing where you just dismiss something without actually looking into it. Show me the data either way. Yeah. I think that's the best approach. Put everything on the table. Let's look at all of it. Well, forgive me. That was a little bit of a tangent, but it's all relevant, right? I'm getting back to the passage for the Warrens on Wikipedia. The passage goes on to say, they took the $13 tour. Uh, now, this is uh, Stephen Novella and Perry DeAngelis. They took the $13 tour and looked at all the evidence the Warrens had for spirits and ghosts. They watched the videos and looked at the best evidence the Warrens had. Quote, their conclusion, colon, it's all blarney, period, close quote. So they looked at everything they had, like, okay, this is, it's blarney here. Uh, the passage goes on to say, they found common errors with flash photography and nothing evil in the artifacts the Warrens had collected. Quote, they have a ton of fish stories about evidence that got away, they're not doing good scientific investigation. They have a predetermined conclusion, which they adhere to, uh, literally and religiously, close quote, according to Novella. Lorraine Warren said that the problem with Perry and Steve is they don't base anything on a god, to which Novella responded, it takes work to do solid critical thinking, to actually employ your intellectual faculties and come to a conclusion that actually reflects reality. That's what scientists do every day, and that's what skeptics advocate. Now, I agree with all that, close quote there. That's me saying that. I agree with all that. But this is, uh, you look at a different kettle of uh, ghost fish. It goes on to say, in an article for the Sydney Morning Herald that examined whether supernatural films are really based on true events, like The Conjuring, that investigation was used as evidence to the contrary. As Novella is quoted, they, the Warrens, claim to have scientific evidence which does indeed prove the existence of ghosts, which sounds like a testable claim into which we can sink our investigative teeth. What we found, 
was a very nice couple, some genuinely sincere people, but absolutely no compelling evidence. Close quote. It was made clear that neither DeAngelis nor Novella thought the Warrens would intentionally cause harm to anyone. They did caution that claims like the Warrens served to reinforce delusions and confuse the public about legitimate scientific methodology. That's the end of the passage there, and I will, uh, I will wrap that up by saying, well, they didn't really say they were charlatans. From that passage and the overview and the, the boiling down of that point of view, I think what can be said was they didn't wow us with their evidence. And I would come back and say, I don't think you'll ever get any evidence that's going to wow the general public that don't believe, that have never had an experience of their own. It's just not going to happen. And again, that may be part of the Astonishing Almanac set of rules, but I don't think it's like, well, there you go. We're back to the ghost in a jar. And you can see that in the Warren's basement for $13, along with a VHS copy and a, you know, and a t-shirt. Right. You're not going to get that. So we're going to revisit that point of view a little bit later on when you have written up uh, some notes here at the, towards the end of the episode. But and I'm going to say why I have a problem with that or just that um, it doesn't make sense in this case. It's, it's kind of hard to apply. So what Steve Novella and Perry are saying is that you didn't provide any evidence, really. And that's what the scientific method demands. And I would agree with that. And I just don't think you're going to get it. But I think small things that happen, that may be it. And then the rest is a personal experience. So uh, I just, I, I hope they haven't gotten um, cursed by touching any of the things. See, this is what I would find interesting. Steve and Perry actually touched Annabelle. And then um, I would want to know what happened to them. You talk about Robert the doll the wrong way, and suddenly you're cursed or bad things happen to you. You poke Annabelle the Raggedy Ann doll, which was the actual doll, and bad things happen to you. Maybe nothing ever happens to most of the people that come near it. But if you believe in the paranormal, why take that chance? So, yeah, I think they're well-meaning. And maybe they exaggerated some stuff. But as far as whether they're out-and-out charlatans, I would have to study this a lot more and, and really get to know people that knew them. Hi, I'm JW, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. We are going to lean more into the skeptical viewpoint on this because it is important and take a look at the bigger picture here. Because in looking at, at yeah. some of the counterpoints of the veracity of these stories or the reality of, of the Perone family situation – Something else has revealed itself, and that's kind of what I want to talk about now as we move forward here. Could this whole story be a hoax? I mean, that's the thing we always try to look at on the show, and I'll be the first to admit, over the years, my mm -hmm. confirmation mm -hmm. bias has tipped me a little more towards believing than disbelieving. It flipped a little bit from when we started. Would you say that you're, you're more accepting? Like I said, we have more concepts on the table that we're considering now, whereas people who are more cynical, you could say about it, Take those off. To your point, I guess I would say less that I'm biased towards it and more that the bias I used to have against stories is weaker than it used to be. So okay. whatever that means. I mean, there's definitely things about Andrea Perone's book, again, House of Darkness, House of Light, True Story, Volume 1, that a part of me finds a little suspect on the surface. For example, she declares the following at the top of the book in the prologue, quote, 
The Perone family requested this tale of darkness and light be honestly told. It contains no embellishment, merely a modicum of literary license regarding dialogue. Though some of it's quite precise, their intention is not to entertain, but rather to inform, end quote. Firstly, her having written the book and that being written as though it's not from her perspective is striking to me. But like, and I'm going to say this, a criticism itself is subjective. I'm no author, but to me, her book contains a fair bit more than a modicum of literary license. It's not only in the dialogue, but also (laughs) in the prose describing things. And additionally, it's my opinion that Andrea Perone is most certainly setting out to entertain. Yes, she does want to inform, no matter what she's saying there, but I think she's right. doing her level best to entertain as well. There's nothing wrong with that, mm-hmm. but just say what you're doing. I, I greatly enjoyed the book, and I've purchased the other two volumes, and I look forward to reading them because I want, I know in one of them, at least, she has individual recollections from other members of the family. And there's nothing wrong with retelling the story in an interesting way and enjoying the writing process. That said, and as we've said in our show for years now, if you believe any of this at all, every point of view, including our own, does come with some sort of confirmation bias. Now, conversely, she was there. And one of the things that we do here at Astonishing Legends when it comes to conclusions and theories is to look at every possible angle we can find. I'll be the first to admit that I've probably looked a little bit less at the hoax side of ghost stories since our Sally House experience. I cannot change how that EVP that we captured there altered a fundamental approach to this stuff for me. It just did. I was there, and I know, because I set up that recording personally and inspected the house thoroughly, that whatever we recorded was not a hoax. I know that because I didn't hoax it. There's no possible way for me to prove (laughs) that to you out there listening. I get that now. That's the curse of the personal experience. The only person who's ever going to truly believe you about a personal experience is someone who experienced it with you. And in the case of these kinds of hauntings and interactions, even someone right in the room might not experience the same thing you did. Well, look at Roger Perone. For the longest time, maybe permanently, never really bought into all this stuff. He was still thinking of other ways where this could have a natural explanation. Yes. But the more severe anecdotes, I guess you could say, or encounters that it's hard to believe that he could just, you know, oh, that was nothing if this actually happened. So, uh, but as we said before, there are different ways of looking at what happened here. Now, I want to clarify when you said uh, we don't look at, or you, I guess you don't look at the hoax side of this. It's not that you're ignoring that, right? Oh, no, I'm not saying that I don't look at it. I'm saying that I don't go after it as quickly as I used to because I now know that the unexplainable is is possible. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying about differing perspectives as as you go along here we're going to we're going to see a little bit of that and again it's going to be 10 different viewpoints on a single on 10 years of experience. Yeah. So and again coming back to you said different perspectives and what I was saying about different people experiencing different things in the same environment I go back to the Sally House when when our whole team was up in the nursery before we made the EVP recording, right after we asked a question, I think, I mean, we were recording, but this was not the famed file 10. And I think the question we asked was, can you tell us your name? And Tess was sitting there on the floor in the nursery. Something brushed Mm -hmm. her hair back from her ear and whispered, why? into it after we said, tell us your name, except she says it wasn't really a whisper. She did feel her hair move, but she knew the sound was inside her head. Now, Mm. do I believe her? Absolutely. This was in the same room we got our infamous File 10 recording later. 
That personal experience was just for her. I'll never forget her saying, did you guys hear that? Yeah. And it was like, what? No, wait. So in dissecting that account further, you say, okay, well, yeah, Scott, I believe you didn't hoax the Sally EVP, but something's wrong with that recorder. It created the sound out of whole cloth because of the nature of its construction. Maybe so, but I would contend that in a closed room with no one around and no significant noise, no kind of electrical engineering error in a recorder without any moving parts, by the way, it's digital, could create something as analog in nature and close to conversation as what that thing picked up. And yeah, we sent it all over. We talked to ham radio experts, blah, blah, blah. You've heard it all before. And if you haven't, you can hear it by listening to our Sally House series, or if you just want to hear that recording, look for File 10 on our YouTube page. But my point is, in sharing all this again, is that, folks, we were all there. We know that what happened was real. Forrest, Tess, our friend Megan, me, my dad, and stepmom, believe it or not, were there. Our Mm -hmm. friend Maria Miller, who at the time was in charge of the house, we were all present. And all in the same room downstairs when the recording was made upstairs. So it seems to me now that that handful of people are the only people who know for sure what happened to us there. The rest of you can believe it or not believe it, but nothing we can say or do can replace the experience of being there when it happened. My point is, none of us can know for sure what living in the Perone house was like. Only the Perone yeah. family knows that. And the truth is, we probably wouldn't have much information about it outside the brief intersection of the Warrens' involvement without Andrea Perone's books. And I'll say this. I had Scott, because <laughs> I hadn't read it yet, so we both skimmed uh, this article from the Daily Beast about somebody who, who'd actually been to the Warrens' house. and as a younger person with a bunch of friends, and I think uh, they took the $13 tour, saw all the stuff down there, which they humorously described as uh, less like something at the Smithsonian and more like a garage sale at John Bonham's house <laughs> of uh, Get the Let Out Zep fame. You know, but their perspective, I think, really sums up, you know, the skeptical part is that it's beyond preposterous that the more they describe, as we said earlier, Ed Warren describing a a fridge levitating, the TV levitating and smashing down, but not breaking in relation to what Andrea said, her mom in an instant, in a split second, flying across the room while levitating in a chair Right, that they all saw. So either they're all in on the gag, in on the, the ruse, the hoax to make it for some reason more sensational to sell something or other make some kind of money because that's what people do when they do this, right? Or you just love the notoriety and attention in summing up what you're talking about with the recorder, okay, is that by now, so many years have passed, my thoughts have coalesced on it. We've heard all the complaints. Uh, Again, we just got another response from Adam at Graveyard Tales about a paranormal investigator. And she said, uh, you know, she's been doing this for years and years you know, listen to hundreds of EVPs, analyze them. She'd heard nothing like that ever before. Yeah. Yeah. It made her feel ill, I think, just uh, just rocked her to the, to the core. And again, I'll say what's interesting is that other people hear it and like, nah, it's just a bunch of noise. You guys are idiots. <laughs> and that's fine too. I'll accept that. Yes. But you, you, I, I want to say one thing about that because you always say that. And what pisses me off about that <laughs> is that, okay, what made the noise? Great. It's just noise. What made the noise in a quiet room with a shut door, with a recorder with no moving parts in a small town with no electromagnetic interference, no two-way radio towers anywhere nearby? Fine. It's just a noise. What made it? (laughs) Well, sir, I'm getting to that. Yeah. My 
idea on these things has shifted. I thought, yeah, of course there are some things that are impossible. There's some things that just don't make sense. I'm in school studying these things, getting a rational, critical perspective, which is what we're supposed to do in school and refine our critical thinking skills. And so what I would say that's changed, there are some things I just don't know about now as far as being impossible. And then now I look to what Jonathan Winters says in an episode of The Twilight Zone called A Game of Pool, where Jack Klugman challenges the greatest pool player, and suddenly... Jonathan Winters, as uh, and I can't remember his character's name, Fat something or other, he gets whisked down from heaven or, or his uh, stationary place where he's playing a game of pool to accept the challenge of Jack Klugman. And of course, he just poof, just shows up in the pool hall of Jack Klugman and says, well, that's impossible. You passed away. I've, I know you. You know, you're a famous pool player. And he says, uh, and Jonathan Winters says, look, nothing's impossible. It's just that some things are less likely than others. That's it. And I've kind of come to adopt that, that thinking. Yeah. So when it comes down to the recorder, and you can extrapolate that towards the Perone experience here, there's two main things that could happen, that it's picking up random radio signals from a radio broadcast somewhere. It's just bleed over, it's picking that up. Or the recorder itself is making that noise, right? It's, that's just the static that, that happens. If it's just making random static noise and it sounds like words and specifically an answer to a question you asked it or just asked out loud, that seems a lot less likely. And in one case, uh, when I was at the old Talbot Inn, before I even asked the question, what I clearly hear is GTFO, leave me alone. Now, for that to be a radio program or just static that the thing makes before you go to speak and it sounds just like that, that's pretty unlikely to me. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. So when you look at these cases here, it's just like the, the likelihood of the rational explanation being a possibility seems a lot less likely than something unexplainable, ineffable. When it comes down to this stuff and talking about this stuff, we have to come back to this idea. Do we believe Andrea and her family? Also, how accurate? Are there memories of the events at this point? She wrote the book 40 years after everything happened. No doubt these were unforgettable experiences, but we all know that when you look back on your memories as a kid, things aren't quite the same. I mean, in my mind, my grandfather's Lincoln Continental Coop was 30 feet long. It's really 19. I mean, that's still absurd. But to me, it was gargantuan because I was small when he had it. I remember events that took place when I was Andrea's age during their time at the farmhouse but I know the details aren't right. Now, of course, everyone's memory functions differently. Some folks just remember things better than others. But the next question becomes, as it does with any astonishing legend, really, what is the seed of this story? What's at the root of it, even if it has suffered a bit from the passage of time and numerous retellings? Is there something here at the base of the story? Or has Andrea Perone fabricated a pretty amazing horror story on the backs of an experience corroborated by the Warrens, who many people find suspect as well? Now, there's no doubt there's room for all of this to happen. It could. We have to be honest. I'll be the first to tell you that right now, based on the information that I've personally been able to collect on this case, I am unable to render a definitive position. Now, with a story as big as this one, everybody and their brother has, of course, looked at it. And there's no shortage of folks with a skeptical viewpoint who've done that as well. Finding a good skeptic can be tricky business because, as we said in the past, we find that many cynics masquerade as skeptics and they only have that cynic part, using the skeptic label to simply assert that things can't be true because it's impossible, and then failing to back that up, which is something Forrest just alluded to a few minutes ago. Yeah, pseudo-skepticism. Yeah, lazy skepticism, as Marcello Truzzi was saying. Yes. Now, but there are some skeptics who are exceptionally good at analyzing a story like this and explaining why there are components of it 
that don't add up. A self-described science enthusiast, which I know Forrest you take umbrage with, podcaster, no, YouTuber. <laughs> no hold on now. Yeah. I'm not casting any aspersions here. It's just kind of funny. It's that's what people do in. Well, they, they they do it for everything. It's just like, oh, paranormal enthusiast. Well, that's what we are, right? I don't know. Well, we're enthusiastic about it, yeah, but yeah. I would say, like, he's uh, the, the person you're going to talk about here is much more versed in uh, science than we are in whatever the heck we're doing. Yeah, that's true. Now, and then also, of course, there was uh, uh, was it the Bachelor Bachelorette. Uh, I don't know the show, but I just remember one of the contestants. She was labeled as a chicken enthusiast. Oh, chicken enthusiast, nice. So it's a, it's a bit of a slight from other people when they label you that. But if you're labeling yourself that, that's fine. Yes. Well, Kenny Biddle, B I D D L E, does label himself as a science enthusiast. He's also a podcaster, a YouTuber, a journalist, and he's one of those guys that does a good job of breaking things down. Now, Kenny has a podcast called the Skeptical Help Bar. He has a YouTube channel also where you can find the video version of that podcast as well as videos looking at specific cases or explaining why he thinks things like the SLS Connect Cam don't work. As of this evening, I've not seen that one myself, but I'm definitely going to check it out. So uh, look for Kenny online on uh, YouTube or you can find him where we did as an ongoing contributor to the Skeptical Inquirer, where he published a piece on the Perone story in December of 2019. Now, I found this piece to be thoroughly well-researched with a ton of exceptionally valid points, and we have a link to it in our show notes. But I did want to share some of the more poignant stuff that he uncovered when he looked into this particular haunting in Harrisville, Rhode Island. I'm sure he'd balk at our EVP, but I'd love to hear his take on it. That's for another time, <laughs> however. Tonight, okay. let's take a look at his counterpoints to the Perone story. So as I said, Kinney posted an article to Skeptical Inquirer on December 4th, 2019, taking a look at this case entitled A Closer Look, Correcting the Conjuring House History. And we have a link to it in the show notes on our webpage for this episode at astonishinglegends.com if you want to read it, uh, and you should if you're interested in this case. Now, Kinney goes over the history of the house after the Perones, some of which we've already covered, and points out in particular that Norma Sutcliffe, who owned the house from 1987 to 2019, says she never experienced anything paranormal there. I think he also adds that she held cooking classes there. People came and nobody had any strange experiences. Also, for 20 years, she had a daycare business running there. Right. In this portal of hell. Right. But, uh, you know, and then he would say, well, no one's going to bring their children there if this thing really is a portal of hell. Right. You know, and again, he points that at paranormal researchers, like, consider that. Yeah. And Kenny also points out that another skeptic whom we respect, Joe Nickel, has already investigated the Perone case himself. Uh, we've not mm -hmm. had the opportunity to read that work as of now, but that's why we're taking Kenny's research into account here as a fair representation of counterpoints to the Perone stories. Now, Kenny is stronger in his criticisms of Andrea Perone's books. I, I got to say, though, I don't disagree with a lot of his observations, which are in line with some things I've already said myself, not the least of which is the non-chronological retelling of events, which makes it difficult to determine if there was an escalation or, or which thing happened first. And that said, though, 40 years after the fact, I'm not sure I could say what order these things happened in either, even if they'd happened to me. But that's beside the point right now. Would you characterize the volumes of books as more stream of consciousness in a way? Yes, more dreamlike. Yeah, yeah. dreamlike in their in their logic and dream logic. Again, I had only read a couple of passages and and certainly not as uh, well. I didn't read as much as you did by any stretch. But what I'll say is the impressions I was getting from the passages that I did read was that it's like a dream, a very long tenure dream where things kind of happen, people change. The facts aren't consistent, yeah. but the feelings are there. And the imagery, especially the imagery, 
remains, yes. but it does not fit a narrative documentary style retelling of everything that happened over 10 years. Yeah, no, I would say that definitely is true. And, and it is a stream of consciousness type dream type layout. And again, it's non-chronological, which at first you're, is a little jarring, but once you get used to it, if you decide not to fight it, you can take the information in. Well, Kenny Biddle's overall point of his research is that there are tenuous connections at best between the characters of the stories in this haunting and people that actually may have lived in the area. Now, one of the first characters that he goes after is that of the 93-year-old woman who hanged herself in the barn. This is one we mentioned in part one of our series here, Mrs. John Arnold. This was, after all, supposed to be the Arnold farm, where I believe up to eight generations of Arnolds had lived. Regardless, Kenny did some commendable research and found two candidates for a Mrs. John Arnold. One of them had indeed passed at 93. The other one died at 50. The catch is, the one who died at 93 passed from natural causes. The one who died at 50, Susan Richardson Arnold, did in fact die by hanging in 1866. According to a local newspaper that Kinney found, her death was most certainly a suicide. She had poison, a loaded gun with her, and she had even left out clothes in another room for her funeral. She hanged herself in a hard-to-reach attic, apparently. But Kenny takes this a step further, pointing out through research that he was able to determine that this particular Arnold family, Susan and her husband, lived several miles away from the location of the Perone farmhouse, which was also occupied by an Arnold family. They were not necessarily directly related, according to him. I think he actually said they weren't related at all. Now, the first thing I would like to note here is how great it is to find everything properly referenced in Mr. Biddle's article. The sources all stand up and they're easily verifiable. Not all skeptical journalists proceed with such detail as we have talked about in the past. I found Susan Arnold myself on Ancestry.com. Everything holds up. She died April 6th of 1866. Not for nothing, this will probably steam Kenny's clams, but that date is 4666. Uh, anyway, just going to point that Ooh. out. Yes, just saying. I actually found a picture of her gravestone on Ancestry as well. She's buried in the Noah Arnold family lot. It's about 180 square feet, has 25 folks buried in it, 23 marked and two unmarked. 15 of the inscribed ones are Arnold's, uh, 1904 being the most recent one. There's lots of these little cemeteries all over the area, and uh, they're now historic sites. But is it sacred ground? We can't say. I'm betting Kenny didn't look into that, although he might know, to be fair. But there is no mention of her cause of death on her gravestone that I could see. But it is weather-worn and partially obscured by leaves in the uh, find-a-grave photo. I'm also going to add that it's off Sherman Farm Road. At this point, we'll circle back to the fact that Bathsheba's last name was Sherman. But this is small town America, and a long time ago, everyone had the same names, and everybody probably knew everyone. That's the way things were and still are in rural areas. There's no death certificates or articles we could find online to corroborate Susan Arnold's manner of death, but Kenny Biddle did find some articles and also was able to cross-reference those circumstances in a book about strange deaths from the area called The Black Book of Burrowville. Burrowville and Harrisville are adjacent to each other. So you might also remember us talking in part one about the gentleman who went up into the eaves of the house, the farmhouse supposedly, and committed suicide by dying a slow and agonizing death drinking horse liniment. What Kenny found here was that, yes, there was a John A. Arnold who died by suicide. He, in fact, drank something called Paris Green. He had been sick and despondent 
and uh, it seemed that he wasn't going to get better, and this led him to that end. Paris Green, which I had not heard of, but Forrest you had, has been used to kill rodents mm-hmm. and insects and to create the color blue in fireworks, as well as dye for dresses and green paint for walls. It contains arsenic, a fair amount of it. Now, according to Wikipedia, by 1880, it was the first widely used chemical insecticide in the world, which would explain how John A. Arnold probably got it. It was probably at all the farms in the area at the time of his death in 1911. Interestingly, the green dye that Paris Green was originally used for actually killed folks in the Victorian era who wore dresses dyed with it due to the arsenic content. It was used in paint as well. Essentially, arsenic was everywhere. In fact, green became a symbol of all things bad as a result, and the color disappeared from paintings due to it. It's plausible that the Riddler's green costume was derivatively influenced (laughs) by the death from Paris Green all those years ago. I digress. But getting back to Kenny Biddle's research on John A. Arnold, yes, John A. Arnold died by suicide. Yes, he drank a horrific poison, albeit Paris Green and not horse liniment. But guess what? Turns out he did not die in the eaves of the Perone family's Arnold Estate farmhouse. Biddle found an obituary showing that this John A. Arnold actually died at his home in Tarkiln. That appears to be about six miles east of Burrowville or Harrisville. Kenny was unable to find any stories either about two men freezing to death in the blacksmith shop at the front of the property, uh, which we mentioned again in part one, although he did uncover two separate cases of men possibly dying from exposure in separate instances. One of these men was Edwin Arnold, who froze to death in 1930 while walking home one evening. He apparently took a shortcut, stopped to rest, and never made it home. He was cutting across some other farms. He was found seven weeks after he passed. This Edwin Arnold is one of the Arnolds who actually owned the home that the Perone family moved into. Several Arnolds owned it over the years, but that seems important to point out. Now, according to Kenny, and I'd have to agree, on the surface, it does not seem that Edwin Arnold is related to the John A. Arnold who drank the Paris Green to kill himself. There's no obvious connection, and nothing indicated that John A. Arnold even visited the Harrisville farmhouse. There was another gentleman named Jarvis Smith, who had recently been acquitted of murder, but like a few years prior, was walking home drunk in 1901, and he took shelter in a shed on the property that has since been torn down. The shed was about 200 feet from the farmhouse that the Perone family would wind up living in. Like Edwin Arnold, the owner of the farm, Jarvis froze to death as well, and we would say probably represents the origin story for the two men dying of exposure in the blacksmith shop. He's the closest thing to that. This next part of Biddle's research is where things got a little muddy for us, and he he had access to more local sources than we do, so my inclination is to side with his assessment, but there is an inconsistency with all of the connections between all of these Arnolds and who died of what when. Now, first, listen to this quote from Kenny Biddle's article. Quote, as far as the available records are concerned, Susan Arnold the one who hanged herself, was not a member of the same Arnold family associated with the Harrisville farmhouse or its barn, end quote. Well, based on what we could determine, and mind you, this comes from Ancestry.com, and it came from a tree with verified sources, but as someone who's flushed my own family tree out going back hundreds of years, I can tell you there's a ton of mistakes made by armchair researchers on there, including myself. There's a ton of Arnolds in the Harrisville, Burrowville area, but we found at least one family tree that would indicate that Edwin Arnold, who froze to death walking home to the farm, the known owner of the Harrisville farmhouse, 
was related by marriage to Susan Richardson Arnold, who hanged herself. Susan being married to Edwin's son, John A. Arnold, apparently. Now, the thing was, she had hanged herself at her home a few miles away. However, even though that ancestry tree suggests that this John A. Arnold is related to Edwin Arnold, and thereby they're all connected to Susan Arnold, who hanged herself, Kenny Biddle says, actually, it's a different John A. Arnold. There's two of these guys, two John A. Arnolds. And uh, since it's a different one, it eliminates a blood connection to Susan Richardson Arnold, the woman who hanged herself at 50. You keeping up? I know this is complicated. Now, restating this because I know it's confusing. There's one family tree on Ancestry.com that suggests the woman who hanged herself, Susan Richardson Arnold, might be associated with the farmhouse because even though Kenny Biddle found that her hanging took place down the road, that she was formerly married to Edwin Arnold's son, John A. Arnold. Problem is, there's two John A. Arnolds in I think Kenny's probably right. I don't think they are related. So they have completely different birth and death dates. There's not a whole lot more we can find out about them, which is strange. You usually can find a lot of information about people from, because this isn't that long ago, but I found like a Civil War draft card for a John A. Arnold, but that was it. As Kenny says, and I'll quote again from his article, John Arnold was the son of Edwin Arnold, mentioned presently, but not the husband of Susan Arnold, mentioned above, end quote. So as you can see, it all gets pretty confusing, and there's a significant lack of records in the area. Now, I'm going to side with Kenny in thinking that somehow the John A. Arnold who drank the Paris Green is the one that Perone refers to in her book as having drank horse liniment, but that somewhere someone along the way got that John A. Arnold mixed up with another John A. Arnold who actually was the son of Edwin Arnold, who did own the Perone family farmhouse. Now, in the final assessment, though, considering how confusing this is, I would say that conflating these two guys would be one of the most honest mistakes I've ever seen. I mean, they have the exact same first and last name and middle initial. So whether Andrea Perone made that mistake or it's baked into local lore, which is also entirely possible, I don't know if you could fault her for it being wrong in her book. Even digging into the records to verify it, you'd have to go pretty deep to realize you were talking about two different people here. Now, Kenny Biddle also mentions Prudence Arnold, and this is a tragedy here. Perone mentions this young girl in her book who had been raped and murdered by a local farmhand who then killed himself. Biddle finds that Prudence was a real person whose parents died when she was a toddler. She was then taken in and fostered by a man named Anand Richardson. That's A-N-A-N. I'm not sure I'm saying his first name right. Anand, Anand. I think in the, the U.S. he would maybe pronounce it Anand. Anand. So I'll go with Anand. The story about her death is sadly quite true. When she was just 11, she was viciously killed by a 22-year-old man who was apparently mad that she wouldn't marry him, an 11-year-old. Get your head around that. Now, Biddle found that this murder took place in Uxbridge, nine miles northeast of the farmhouse. So again, off-site. Now, With as many Arnolds and Shermans as there are in this area, I'm going to go ahead and point out something that Biddle didn't mention or necessarily come across. Susan Richardson Arnold, the woman who hanged herself, had a younger brother by two years. His name was Annan, or Anon, Annan Richardson. As near as we can tell on Ancestry, Annan never married. He died at 76 on August 2nd, 1894. There's no mention of prudence in the information we can find pertaining to him But if he was fostering her, there may not have been any paperwork about that, not back then. It could also be a different Annan Richardson, but his age is right to be the man who took Prudence in after her parents died. He would have been around 22 then, and 33 or so when she was murdered. And the Annan we found on Ancestry 
was in fact born in Uxbridge, so that all adds up. That also means that Prudence's horrific murder took place while she was in the care of Annan Richardson, whose sister, Susan Richardson Arnold, is the one who would later hang herself, which in turn creates a connection between at least those Richardson and these two tragedies that are both woven into the Conjuring story now. Susan took her own life in 1866 by hanging 17 years after Prudence's murder. Now, I'll remind everyone one last time that Kenny Biddle does not believe that Susan Richardson's husband, John A. Arnold, was the same John A. Arnold whose father, Edwin, owned the Harrisville farmhouse. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to prove him wrong about that. This is when we come to Bathsheba. Now, before we get into the Bathsheba part of this story, listen to this excerpt from page 326 of Andrea Perone's book, House of Darkness, House of Light, A True Story, Volume 1. While laying in place, enjoying the solitude, relishing beautiful language, unfolding page after page before her eyes, Carolyn was abruptly struck, attacked from behind. She felt a sharp, stabbing pain in her calf. Turning quickly around to see if a bee had stung her, Carolyn saw nothing on her leg except a mounding puddle of blood at the point of impact. The wound was deep, plunging well into the muscle. She leapt up from the sofa, certain a creature was loose in the parlor, preparing to strike again, perhaps a wasp or maybe a beetle. It did not occur to her this event was anything other than a natural phenomenon, to consider she was not alone. There had been none of the normally expected indications usually accompanying paranormal episodes. No sudden drop in temperature, no odors in the room, nothing which would compel her to believe otherwise. The pain was real, the blood was real, her muscle went into spasm, hobbling the woman. As the Charlie horse subsided, she began looking around in the parlor, initiating a thorough search of their premises to determine where the culprit might be hiding. She checked the sofa over for sharp foreign objects. The windows were clear of flying critters, as were the curtains, a cozy place to cling. The notion of a bee sting was remote, but little chance a bee would have stung her at night. She pulled the sofa away from the wall, peering behind it. There were no insects or stray objects on the floor. No empirical evidence of anything unusual nothing protruding from the cushion of the sofa on which she'd been laying, nothing on the coffee table, nothing. Carolyn finally abandoned her search. She went in the bathroom to cleanse the wound inflicted. It was still bleeding profusely. Once the point of impact became visible, she noticed the size of the puncture wound. It was distinctly round, quite deep, as if a large sewing needle had impaled her skin, leaving behind a perfectly concentric circle a sudden stick doing more damage than merely scratching the surface. Her calf was very swollen, though not the way it would have been had some type of venom been injected into a tender area. Limping as she went along, Carolyn tried to walk off then rub out the spasm. Returning to the parlor, a perplexed woman investigated the immediate area around the point of contact, attempting to determine the nature of an injury sustained. Confounded, she gave up and revisited her book. Dismissing this event as some sort of anomaly, Several days passed before the wound healed. Stiff muscle softened, and a painful leg returned to normal. Life went on. Time to prepare for the girl's return to school in September. She was a busy mother and simply forgot about the queer incident, shoving it into the back of her mind. It would be a couple of years before she recalled this episode during a conversation she had with Ed and Lorraine Warren. While Carolyn was displaying her research to the couple, she told them the story of Bathsheba Sherman, the needle. Was it even possible? Could it be true? Had the woman taken a weapon with her into the afterlife? 
could she use it from beyond this world, beyond the grave? Lorraine posited a theory of her own. Demons are indeed capable of inflicting pain upon mortals, capable of doing harm across dimensions, defying time as we perceive it. Their conversation triggered her memory of this strangely disquieting incident, and so it remains a painful consideration. Intuition revealed a likely suspect, a logical lead to a culprit. Divulging the tale of a woman supposedly wielding a weapon in life, from that point forward, this psychic presumed it was her needlework doing the devil's footwork, a needle and the damaging it had done in life and perhaps in the afterlife. From then on, Mrs. Warren referred to the godforsaken spirit as the lone demonic presence in their house, calling her by her name, Bathsheba. Okay, so we talked about this in part one before we read Kenny's article on all this, but he says the same thing we did, really. Is there a possibility that Bathsheba Sherman has been unfairly maligned in this astonishing legend? Well, one of the things we discovered in the course of this show, is that many of these legends are based on misunderstandings and fear of folks that are perceived as different in their own contemporaneous society. So the easiest example of this would be how women who lived alone and kept to themselves might be labeled witches, or in the case of the Jersey Devil, which we covered back in June of 2017, whether there was a real devil or not, there was a longstanding political feud fought by way of the printing press that ballooned into the maligning of at least two men's reputations, probably on mostly unfounded ground or exaggeration. It's easy to see how that happens. So again, as we said in part one, well before we were deeper into the history of this story, we have to consider the fact that Bathsheba Sherman may be a scapegoat for everything at the root of this legend. By Andrea Perone's account, which we shared in part one, Bathsheba, according to a local elderly amateur historian who claimed to know of her as a child, was accused of murder in the death of an infant in her care. This infant, apparently having died, by having a sewing needle inserted into the back of its skull. Perone's book goes on to point out that there was not enough evidence to convict Bathsheba of a crime, and she was allowed to go free. But apparently, the townsfolk in the area couldn't move past the fact that she might have murdered that child. Additionally, there were rumors that the murder was a ritualistic sacrifice. Well, let's start with this. Was Bathsheba Sherman a real person? Yeah. We can show you a picture of her gravestone, which at one point was vandalized and broken into pieces, but it's since been repaired. She was a real person. Here's what we can tell you about her from taking a look at Ancestry.com. Bathsheba Thayer Sherman was born in 1812 to Dr. Ephraim Thayer Jr. and Bathsheba Payne Thayer. She had one brother named Nathan Taylor and three half-siblings, Enoch, Arathusa, and Josiah Shaw. Arethusa was only 15 when she passed away, apparently. Bathsheba would later marry Judson Sherman and have four children, although only one of those children lived past the age of three, and that was Herbert L. Sherman, who passed away in 1903. By coincidence, in uh, January, that's the same year Edwin Arnold died of exposure walking back to the Harrisville farmhouse. But still no connection between these folks that we can see. It's no surprise to find that all of the family trees on ancestry that include Bathsheba, are private. After The Conjuring, it's hard to imagine why they wouldn't be. Here's the thing about this. Kenny Biddle's article does not agree with everything I just said at all. It's, I'm not saying he's wrong, but listen to this. His research indicates that Bathsheba's dad was, in fact, Ephraim Thayer, like I said, but her mom was not Bathsheba Payne Thayer, but a woman named Hannah Taft. In either event, neither Kenny Biddle nor us are saying that Bathsheba was an Arnold. That's important because it severs the connection to the Arnold farmhouse. 
but we also can't find any evidence her mom was Hannah Taft. I'm not sure how significant that is, but we found a Hannah Taft in the area and from the right time, born in 1812, died in 1890, and she married a Sherman, but that guy's name was Waterman Sherman. They had a son named Albert. There was no Bathsheba. That uh, son only lived one year. They had one daughter, Josephine Sherman, who lived to be 43. As near as we can tell, there is no readily identifiable connection to Bathsheba Sherman and Hannah Taft. That said, Kenny Biddle does seem to have the rest of Bathsheba's family history right, at least in terms of it matching up with what we found as well. It's just that her mom, rather than being Hannah Taft, was in fact also named Bathsheba, as we said earlier, Bathsheba Payne Thayer. Biddle concurs that Bathsheba Sherman was a Thayer, so that all lines up. He has the same spouse for her, Judson Sherman, whom we found as well. Nevertheless, Biddle goes on to point out that Bathsheba died of sudden paralysis on May 25th of 1885, which he takes to be a stroke. Perone's book mentions her turning to stone, which fits with that. However, there's one glaring thing missing from Bathsheba Sherman's known history. There's absolutely no evidence of the death of a child in her care. Keeping in mind that the story in Perone's book stated that the child that had died by the sewing needle was not her own. And that removes the three children she had herself that died young because they did not die under suspicious circumstances as far as we can tell. Kenny Biddle was on the ground in the area. He spoke with local historians and did research locally. He could find nothing indicating that the death of this child ever took place. Now, at Astonishing Legends, we have membership to a few newspaper archive websites. And I can tell you personally, there's not a single mention on any of them from any paper in the country about the death of an infant by way of a sewing needle to the skull. Okay, so you're saying, though, to, to make this clear, that no child, no infant died in that manner at this time and place. There is no history of that. And not only that, I couldn't find any infant child that died with a sewing needle in the skull in the country in the 1800s at all. So, right. you know, based on six years of digging things like this up on newspaper sites, it's pretty hard to imagine a story like this wouldn't appear somewhere on one of those papers. I mean, not every paper in the country is in there, but there are a lot of them yeah. are. Thousands are. So, Well, here, here's the next question yeah. then, and you may get to this yet because I don't, uh, I know where you're going with this, of course, but uh, where did this story come from then? Well, let's talk about that. Things, crimes like this certainly happened and stayed under the radar. I mean, we, we talked about this mm -hmm. in the Velisca Axe Murder series, where, you know, and the, sure. the Man from the Train, I think, is the book where that, uh, those researchers postulated that there was this unknown person that rode the rails and went around killing everybody with axes. And, and these crimes Well, happened. obviously, somebody did, yeah. Yeah, somebody <laughs> that's did. That's what we know. Because they're dead. And I'm going to make that, it's funny you bring that up, but yeah. I'm going to talk about Velisca in my conclusions. Okay, great. Here's where we're at. Now, according to Andrea Perone, her mother, Carolyn, had a very close friend who almost is written as angelic in the book and uh, also lived in a local haunted house. And this person helped Carolyn track down all of the local history on not only Bathsheba, but all the major players in this story in the area. Some of this was done with the aid of an older gentleman whose last name was the only one given, and that was McEachern, M-C-K-E-A-C-H-E-R-N. Now, Mr. McEachern, was actually portrayed as an elderly gentleman who was supposedly old enough that he remembered Bathsheba from his childhood, and he had absolutely nothing nice to say about her. Perone even indicated in her book that he would couch his true opinion and knowledge of Bathsheba for the sake of her mother's respectable ears. But Bathsheba was painted by him as a murderer, witch, harlot, and just downright unlikable soul. However, Kenny Biddle suggests that McEachard might not even exist. Now, on that hunch, I went looking for McEacherns in the area and found nothing. 
Zippo on Ancestry again. Not even close, really. There's McKitchen. There's other names that are similar. If that person is a fixture in the area, that's not their real name, which is, of course, entirely possible. It's also possible Andrea Perone used a pseudonym for somebody else. The lack of the readily identifiable existence of this local historian or this person who knew Bathsheba does not mean that Andrea Perone didn't know of someone who claimed that. But the closer you look at all of it, this is what you see. Bathsheba Sherman was a real person. There is no evidence Bathsheba Sherman ever killed a child. There is no evidence she was related to the Arnold family at all, much less the Arnolds that owned the farmhouse. There is no evidence of the existence of a historian that knew all about her past. Biddle points this out as well, but it's simple math. Bathsheba died in 1885. We know that. We can see it right on her gravestone. By 1971, when things were unfolding at the Harrisville farmhouse, McEachern would have to have been 85. Yet he said he knew her or remembered her enough to describe from his childhood. Let's be generous and say that he would have had to been maybe nine years old for that memory to work. Yeah. In which case, in 1971, he actually would have had to have been 96 to be making reference to knowing Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. So it all seems a little bit thin. So I'm, I'm with Biddle on this. Let's not only dismiss Bathsheba as the villain. Let's let her off the hook until we hear otherwise about her disposition and exploits as a living person. Now, Kenny said he read all three volumes of Andrea Perone's books, and he points out that in volume three, she herself cops to the fact that there's no evidence supporting the accusations against Bathsheba. She also apparently puts the naming of Bathsheba on Lorraine Warren who supposedly identified her. But actually, having read volume one myself, I can attest to the fact that in her book anyway, Andrea Perone made it quite clear that Carolyn and her aforementioned friend did all the historical research and that they were the ones who first identified Bathsheba, even though later she and Lorraine Warren did. Also, and it's unrelated because it's fiction, but in The Conjuring, the Warrens are depicted as doing all the significant research, but that's just trying to make the movie interesting and make them the heroes. Yeah, it's the the part of the movie where I say it's called Ask the Expert, yes, and then they bring the out a stack of dusty old grimoires, yes. and you, you pour through it, and you find out the answer. What's going on? Well, this is your problem here. Just turn to this uh, leather-bound book page, right. and uh, you'll see this diagram of some spooky thing. Right. One thing that Kenny's article did say, and you, again, you may be coming to this, is that a lot of the information it would seem then comes from Carolyn Perone, the mother's journal on all this. And a great observation by Kenny Biddle is that, where is this journal? So apparently the story about all this information, which would have been a great source and resource, is that it was given to the Warrens. Yes, and it's missing. To research, and, you know, they, well, he speculates, and of course, uh, what's fun about his articles, he uses a lot of quotations, is quotation investigators. Yes. Quotation investigation, but that they either stole it, or more likely never gave it back if they did actually receive it, or, as Kenny says, maybe it never existed. Right. We don't want to have to think about that, but it's a possibility. Yeah, so yeah. where did all this stuff come from, this information? Well, obviously, somebody thought it up if it's made up, or somebody got it from somewhere. Well, it may just be folklore. It, and Kenny's article has a lot more great information in it, uh, including the stuff about the journal. You guys should read it. But the takeaway that stood out to me the most is that as far as it relates to all of the strange deaths that have supposedly taken place at the Arnold Farmhouse in Harrisville, only one lines up with the Perone story, and even then, only barely. It's the story of Jarvis Smith, who 
who, while on his way home, drunk, stopped to rest in the shed at the edge of the property and froze to death. Now, you could connect that to the lore of the two men that supposedly froze to death in the blacksmith shop. That's it. All the other suicides, murders, and deaths have varying degrees of truth to them, but there was definitely a suicide by consuming poison, there was definitely a suicide by hanging, and there was definitely the murder of a little girl, but none of it happened at the Arnold farmhouse. Hi, I'm Kaylee, and when I'm not hunting for Bigfoot at home in the Pacific Northwest, or Nessie while I'm at school in Scotland, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. So this is the part that will probably irritate Kenny Biddle, but stay with us here. We want to ask a question. Does a lack of accurate historical connections to the haunting stories in this case mean the whole thing is made up? By the way, Kenny, should you hear this? I loved your article and approach. Not calling <laughs> you out did. here. Yes. Yeah. These are legit philosophical questions I'm about to post. Right. I, I just want to make it clear, though, commendable effort by him. Very well written. Yes. We'd love to have a beer with you and and hash all this stuff out as much Absolutely. as, uh, you know, Blake loves to talk to us. We love talking with him about the various viewpoints on this. And I want to say this is not an example of lazy skepticism. No. This is what you should be doing. Yes. This is exactly what you should be doing rather than saying like, well, none of that could happen because it's just impossible, right? No, you find back out. It up. Back it up. And he he lists on that page his viewpoint, which aligns with Houdini, is that he's not a hopeless skeptic. He's not a debunker. He's not a cynic. He's more agnostic. He just wants to see some good proof. Right. And he does the research. This is a prime example of how you should approach this. Follow the leads. Exactly. Now, that being said, I have a perspective, I think, on his point of view, but I'll save that till you get done. Okay. Well, yeah, these are my additional questions. And mm -hmm. uh, Forrest, if you think you can help me articulate these better than I've got them here, you can. But all okay. right. So here, here they are. What are the parameters for falsifying someone's personal experience? with a haunting. Like, who decides, oh, well, this whole story is false because the woman that committed suicide lived six miles away. When we take the skeptical viewpoint, and I wholeheartedly agree with Biddle's conclusions that there are a lot of details here that don't connect with the Perone's experiences, but are we saying if the results had been, quote, oh, yeah, it turns out Bathsheba really was a baby-killing mean maniac and she lived in the house, so haunting approved. This story is definitely true. <laughs> Is that, would yeah. that be? Because then what's the point of the counterpoint if there's no opposite point to it that confirms the information? Now, I'm wondering if Tobin's spirit guide makes it clear that the ghost of a woman <laughs> who hanged herself six miles away isn't allowed to leave the spot where she was hanged. Because firstly, mm -hmm. our conceit is that if ghosts exist, they got to obey the rules of time and space uh, like we do here on Earth. But you can't haunt that house. How are you going to get over there? So... <laughs> And Biddle mentions a few times in his article that certain Arnolds in the story aren't related, which I concur, I get that, but or that Bathsheba Sherman had never been to the Harrisville farmhouse while she was living and had no association with those Arnolds. Respectfully, I don't see how he or anyone living could know that. In a small town region like this, I come from a small town. You can't possibly know all the places I've been or visited or where I've had friends. I'll also say, as someone with extensive experience building out a 3,000-person family tree at Ancestry.com, those Arnolds up there are likely all related. That's how it works. They may be distantly related. They may not know each other in current generations, but somewhere up the line, they're probably related. I found a guy with my <laughs> exact same name years ago mm -hmm. up in Maine. We chat from time to time, and after we connected, it only took a week or two to figure out that our great, 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 
great, great, great, that's six greats, grandfather, Joshua Philbrick, who lived from 1694 to 1743, was common to both of us. He's in Maine. I'm in North Carolina. Once you start working those trees, you figure out how closely we're all actually tied. But coming back to the assertion that people that lived over 100 years ago, within five to 10 miles of each other, their whole lives, but were never intertwined, that's an assertion made without any supporting evidence. And in fact, it makes assumptions based on the idea that there's no written history showing that people met. That to me is more of a leap than believing in a haunting that you didn't personally witness. So where am I going with this? This is where the theories and conclusions reach out past the current episode we're doing and go back into our experience at having covered these stories for over six years. One of the pivotal series we did was on a book that Richard Haddon brought to our attention, uh, and we've mentioned a few times since we covered it, called The Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts. We just did that in uh, November of 2020. The book had some pretty revelatory information in it regarding a connection with the afterlife, wherein the author was able to ascertain incredibly specific information Uh, relating to known deceased individuals and acquired through a medium or channeling. Now, I'm sure skeptics just hopped off the bus with that last sentence, but here's what that story taught us, and it's very compelling. These communications and interactions from the other side may not be what they seem. In fact, they seem tailored to get the most attention from you. What else is fascinating is that this attention can be positive or negative. What if Andrea Perone and her family did actually experience all the things she described in her book? What if that's true? Imagine then that they attempted to reverse engineer the events, as many people do in these cases, and inadvertently wound up subconsciously tailoring their research through accidental confirmation bias in a way that molded actual events or uh, what they thought were actual events into something that made sense as the inspiration for the haunting. So if you follow up the possibility of these things from the other side, trying to capitalize on any common ground they can find, then it just might be possible that the characteristics of a haunting are dictated by your greatest hopes and your worst fears as the victim. And whichever one of those is pertinent depends on what is haunting you and what it's after, light or darkness. Now, in Siren Call of the Hungry Ghosts, Even the romantically inclined ghost that seems to feed off the love of the author by convincing them they were star-crossed lovers from a long-ago time gets angry when he starts to realize that the facts she's sharing via a medium don't add up. There's a (laughs) how-dare-you component to it. Whatever the reasoning is, in the end, she becomes irritated that he's even questioning the story. In other cases, we have what I call the Ghostbuster scenario especially when it comes to the energy of fear and the darker side of things. When Gozer says, choose a form, she's saying, go ahead, pick the instrument of your destruction. In the case of a malevolent haunting, is it possible the victim is choosing what is appearing and torturing them? The entity or thing taking on the form that it knows will cause the most fear. Now, you've got a situation where the Perone family maybe hears some apocryphal story about Bathsheba Sherman that was a small rumor or entirely made up, and they lean into it, desperate to understand what is happening in their house. And the more they do that, the more these things taunting them lean into it, too. It doesn't matter if it was ever true. Could that be the case? Well, that's all absurd. Ghosts aren't real. Okay, then. Why are we even discussing this in the first place? If you can take all the time and effort to pick this story apart, making up your own set of parameters about what makes it true or untrue, even if it's only implied and not directly stated, then why not try to pick apart the deconstruction of it in the same way too? So to that end, I'll go through the standard stuff here. Real simple. No one said it was carbon monoxide poisoning. No one said it was anti-NMDA receptor 
encephalitis, which leads to symptoms identical to possession, as we discussed in the summer of 2017 in our three-part series on Annalise Michel, or later in February of 2019 when our guest Sarah talked about actually having that disease. No one has said that this was mental illness on the part of the Perone family. There is only, as far as we can tell, this is either a haunting or a hoax. So which is it? Are Andrea Perone and by extension her entire family lying about everything? Or did they make the mistake of a little fabrication mixed with not-so-great research methods to explain something real that was happening, something beyond the scope of their understanding, something that actually took pleasure in their misguided attempts to understand it? Because that's a thing, too. These things like to make you think that you know who and what they are. Because in not only believing that, but being wrong about it, they retain even more power. So my point here, Forrest, is that... Mm. I would like to posit the possibility that they experienced something real and that they weren't great at looking up what was causing it. And they put all right. these pieces together trying to figure it out, but they misinterpreted what the apparitions were or what their intentions were. Right. And then not only that, their misinterpretations guided those things to become more of what they knew was they were afraid of. Mm. I know this seems crazy, you know, <laughs> you crazy. There's, yeah, there's no. Yeah. And I feel like Kenny's going to hear this because we said his name so many times. Somebody's going to tell him about it and he's going to listen yes, and he's going to go, yes. yes, you're right. You seem crazy. So, I, <laughs> well, that's fine. But this is where I've gotten to after all the yeah. stuff we've learned and read about and, and the whole like the Estes method and everything. It's like these things mm -hmm. will mess with you to no end. And on top of that. They're all about making you think you're just about to get proof and then pulling the rug out from under you and right. making that part of the experience. I wholeheartedly agree. And here's the deal. That is your POV. Right. And mine is very similar, but they're not identical. I always tell people we disagree on just enough to keep the show interesting. It would be Supposedly. Uh, less of a, well, yes, it would just be a, 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 a psychophant fest if we just agreed to everything. But uh, we differ in some of our views. But yeah, I'm on board with everything you just said. But here's my breakdown of what I had mentioned earlier. You have to look at this story by who's looking at it. It just goes back to what you said something earlier before we started recording, actually. We were talking about, like, what's the overarching, uh, overarching philosophy on this tale? And when we title it the true story of the Perone family haunting, the true story of the conjuring, what is the true story? What are the details? And you said something to the fact, all these details doesn't matter. Does not matter in some aspect of what this is. What are we looking at and through what lens, through what filter do we look at it? Because that determines all the meaning that's important to each of us personally when we consider something like this kind of a story. So starting off here, when you look at it as Kenny Biddle, and again, I'm speaking for him. I don't know the the gentleman. I would love to meet him one day. Like I said, I would love to have a bunch of beers and and talk about uh, just everything that he's seen and his point of view. I want to hear and him I kind of know too. that. Uh, <laughs> well, I kind of think I know what he's going to say about all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But here's the deal: when you talked about all this and the rules and this and that and what can and cannot be and what's possible. As far as, uh, like you said earlier, what defines a haunting, 
he's looking at it, I believe, not from the POV of a ghost hunter per se, or a paranormal researcher, or a parapsychologist. He's looking at it from somebody who's skeptical about these things and breaks them down and analyzes them. And I think, again, applaud him fully for this article. Really enjoyed reading. It was just fun reading it and seeing the different point of view. And it changed my, my scope on this because when we started part one, my attitude about it by the end here of part two has changed. I've now zoomed up, as you would say, to the 10,000 foot level looking down on this. It's like it, it is a collection of points of view and experiences and when you back it up completely, it all has to be looked at by how are we all trying to make sense of this from our own personal perspectives. And from Kenny's point of view or, or any critic, it's got to be logic, right? It's got to be scientific method. It's got to be, as he says, uh, I think that sweatshirt he's wearing in one of the photos, science is good because it's a lot better than making stuff up. Yes. By the way, at the Find a Grave website, I can't remember if it's yeah. Bathsheba's or one of them where they show all the pictures of the cemeteries, you know, on Find a Grave Memorial right. and you see the different gravestones. One of them is him standing there at, at, <laughs> at the Find a Grave. That's pretty cool. And which I didn't realize till later I saw him in the, in the article. Yeah. So when you look at this, it's like we're all trying to make sense of something that is ineffable. It's liminal. It's of uh, it's nuministic. Well, I'm just throwing out a bunch of terms here. I, I just uh, learned over the uh, the last few years about, <laughs> uh, all this crap we talk about. But we're trying to make sense of this logically. Okay, well, we all do, right? Because this is how we function, and that is especially the the role of a of a critic and analyst and somebody who is looking at it skeptically, and not from somebody who totally buys into this. You could say, or or believes this, or or has looked at the rules. So. When looking at it logically, like a lot of people do, you'll see this attitude quite a bit. They make one-to-one -one connections because, again, we're trying to make sense of something that is unknowable. It's the spirit world. We don't know how this works. A lot of people claim to have interacted with it. They see stuff all the time. They claim to have gotten evidence. And as Mr. Biddle's viewpoint is, is that he's, I would say, accurately probably agnostic about it. He just wants to see good proof. So I'm going to, I made a bunch of notes here and I'm just going to wildly go through them quickly here. So the logic that follows is uh, from a lot of people in the mainstream, you could say, and not people who have uh, really studied, you know, ghost hunting and uh, parapsychology and looked into this and, and looked at the patterns from the layperson's point of view, this house can't be haunted because one, no one died here. The house is brand new. It was just built. It can't be haunted. It's not on burial grounds. No one has ever reported anything strange before here, uh, like ghosts. And also ghosts, as you say, always stay put. Uh, where the person died, that's where the ghost pops up. But then again, there's no such thing as ghosts, so that's impossible as well. These are points that I'm just generally making and how people think about it. Funny little anecdote, I was visiting my friend Tracy, and he might be listening to this later. He is a fire captain and first responder. He's, he's seen a lot of gruesomeness, okay? I was in his car and uh, I had the DR60 recorder and uh, I just brought it along because we'd been chatting about it. He, he was talking about like, well, how does that thing work? I did a little demo and I got some chirps of what sounded to me like speech in there. And I said, well, well, what do you, what do you think of that? And he's like, well, first of all, I guess I think as what his son might be saying about it was, I know my Honda is not haunted. Right. <laughs> so yeah, well, that makes sense. Why would I pick up anything in your, in your Honda 
it's got to be then a malfunctioning recorder, right? Well, I've picked up stuff all over the place. And again, I would say, you know, that wasn't the best EVP I got, but that shouldn't be getting something there. And I've gotten other places where suddenly this thing that just malfunctions and makes static, makes static that just happens to sound like words. And also not just random words like, come on down to the 4th of July mattress sale which you would expect to hear if it were an errant radio transmission, it answers your questions, okay? Now, to me, that's less likely than being random. That's as far as I'll go. That's, that's all I know, is that it answered the question in context. It seems a lot less likely than just something totally random and a coincidence, okay? So getting back to the rules, I don't think we know the rules. Uh, I don't think we can say linearly, well, there, there you go, no one died in this house, so it can't be haunted. So as Kenny Biddle says, Norma Sutcliffe, who he met and talked to, owned the house from 1987 until she sold it to the Heinzens. That's that family who now opens it up, and they believe that it has a lot of paranormal activity still in it. Uh, that happened in June 2019. And according to Kenny Biddle, Norma Sutcliffe, uh, the owner prior to the, the current family there, who's, that's the person who uh, had a daycare running there for 20 years, I think and also uh, taught cooking classes, and no one ever reported anything strange. She never claimed to have any ghostly issues with the house. She never said she believed in ghosts, but, quote, did remark on some sounds which could, of course, be explained by natural causes. And this is what Kenny says as well. What they reported, though, slight vibrations of a door, a chair, a bed. If I come into my bedroom and the bed is vibrating, the door is vibrating a little, the bed is vibrating a little, maybe it's a bus going by, but I lived there a long time. I know what that all sounds like. If nothing else is happening, it's not proof of ghosts. It's proof of, well, that's weird and that really shouldn't be happening. What's going on? And so here's what I would say about Kenny's statement about that is that Extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. And I'm down with that. I'll buy that. I would love that. I would love extraordinary proof. I don't think we're ever going to get it. And that's what I was saying earlier about Steve Novella and Perry DeAngelis, is that they looked at the Warner stuff. It's like, well, that's all real cute. And it's a doll and glass and whatever. And I went home and nothing moved around. I didn't, wasn't missing stuff. No uh, static portraits were winking at me. <laughs> when I got home, nothing happened. We don't know. Maybe something did happen and maybe they ignored it or they don't want to talk about it. Whatever. It doesn't matter because here's the deal. When they say extraordinary proof is required of extraordinary claims, I believe we do get proof, but it's not extraordinary enough. So from Kenny Biddle's point of view, it's like, well, maybe some stuff vibrated. They heard some knocking and weird noises, but not enough for me. Not sold. No sale here. Until he sees something that really rocks his boat, that's going to be the judgment. And I don't think that that will ever happen. Or you can't expect that to happen. The extraordinary component of it sometimes relates more to when and where the thing is happening, maybe, rather than what it is. Because right. they're wanting the extraordinary part to be the mothership from Close Encounters, when in some <sighs> cases, the extraordinary part might be just that you're hearing a noise where no noise should be able to be produced. That's the extraordinary thing. Yeah. But you're ignoring it because it's like, oh, it just sounds like a little knock. But you're not going to ignore 
the mothership sitting over Devil's Tower. Yeah. That's not what we get. And it's like I used to rib you about, <laughs> yeah. you're writing a movie for us, you're trying to make it turn this way. And I think in some cases, based on what you're just yeah. saying, and I'm only just now, this is just now gelling right. for me, but I think the skeptical side of things too, it's like, well, I didn't, you know, I want to see a full floating, you know, apparition, whatever, quote Dan Aykroyd. It's like, I want to see the librarian yeah. in Ghostbusters. I want to see the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, you know, 10 stories coming right. down the street. Right. If it's not that, then it's not, you know, yeah. We've talked about this concerning disclosure. There could be on the news a a live press conference with the classic, uh, you know, Klaus Baratu, Nick Du, the, the, the UFO sets down on the White House lawn, and there will still be people tweeting at as well. It's from the government. I don't believe them. As far as I'm concerned, Commander Fravor's footage relating to that is extraordinary evidence of that drone yeah. on the FLIR or whatever, on that jet, on the Super Hornet, the way that thing's flying, that's extraordinary yeah. evidence. And I've seen it. My point to you, sir, is that it doesn't matter to some people. It's just like, it's a dysmorphia. They won't see it that way. It's just like, well, well, we just saw that. It's like people saying like, well, again, these, these fighter pilots, you know, they just mistook stuff. It's like the blinking triangle that's in the night vision scope that was taken by the Navy. And they were saying, the Navy saying that's authentic footage. And people were saying, well, come on, it's just a reflection of uh, something else blinking. It's so, (laughs) somebody said that on on Twitter. It's like, it's so obvious. Like they didn't consider that before they released. And said it was authentic. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, and here's my point. So then it's, it's a reflection on the lens of them shooting what into the night sky? Like they're taking photos of just a starry sky because it looks nice. Or was there something they were actually getting footage of? I don't believe they would release something. It's like, well, it's just a lens flare, obviously. So it doesn't matter. People are going to just go with what they're going to believe. And especially when it comes to ghosts, because that drills down to your core beliefs. So getting back to that, this is what I see. What's kind of funny is that if you use the argument again, as we have just seen with this case, but also Amityville, all these other haunted places, somebody moves in after that family, nothing happened. Nothing ever happened. See, there you go. They moved in. They lived there 20 years after this, uh, all this crazy stuff happened. Nothing, nothing ever happened to them. It's got to be bogus, right? Well, if you study this ghost business, then you'll know that that's not always the case. Again, you're trying to put a logical through line through this, and it doesn't apply. But here's my point with a logic flaw in that. So you're using that as an argument, like, well, okay, the Perones get in there, all this crazy stuff, the portals to hell open up, and then Norma Sutcliffe gets in there, lives there for 30 years, nothing ever happens. What are you saying? Because the logic flaw to me is that if the Perones were lying, then Norma Sutcliffe and her husband get in there and nothing happens. And that's proof that they didn't have a ghostly experience. The Perones didn't. Are you saying that ghosts are possible? Because it doesn't make any sense. If ghosts are impossible, then it doesn't matter what Norma Sutcliffe experienced later on. The Perones had to be lying. If the Perones were telling the truth and Norma Sutcliffe gets in there and could it have just stopped? Well, if you study this kind of stuff, you'll see that it targets people specifically. Uh, I go back to the story of, again, people we trust, Liz and Craig Kukowski, having the same dream experience, the vivid, lucid dream experience for years growing up in that house at the same time, the exact same experience, but neither of them knowing it until later when they're adults. And they just happen to discuss it while out for drinks. 
and it blows her mind. Then they ask the younger sister who had a room down at the end of the hall. Nothing. Nothing ever happened to her. Right. So you're trying to, again, find some logic in this. And it's like, there's no logic in this. <laughs> it's going back to the siren call. There's nothing that will make sense for you to all put this together in a, well, there you go. So-and-so died in the house. It historically lines up. Sometimes that happens, but you can't count on it. They had some weird stuff, I think. Oh, on the maybe it was on the, uh, the Zach Bagans uh, uh, episode where it's pretty uneventful. A door swings open and closed again. And, you know, that could be explained by differences in air pressure, uh, just the opening and closing or an accomplice. You know, somebody was pulling a string. I don't believe the, the Warrens ever went to those unfortunate uh, extremes to fake stuff. I've not seen anybody ever say that. When they say they have a, a beef against the Warrens or any of these people, it's just more of a feeling. It's like, well, I don't know. I don't feel like they're on the level. It's like, well, do you have any proof? Like, no, nah, not really. Just, a, yeah, I don't like what they're doing. So again, yes, I would like some extraordinary proof, but I also don't buy that there isn't any proof which a lot of these people will say, like, well, there's no proof. Well, we, we get that all the time. What do you think is proof? What would convince you? You won't know till that happens to you. I guarantee you might think it's an intellectual concept. I, I know exactly if this ever happened to me, but maybe that would, and then it, it, uh, it wouldn't convince you, and maybe something so much more subtle will happen to you, and bam, it's going to rock your world. So overall here, you have to look at what are you trying to prove if you're a skeptic looking at this, if you're Andrea Perone looking at this. If you're us, are you trying to prove that ghosts in general aren't real or that this house really wasn't haunted or maybe just not by the spirits that Andrea was claiming it to be haunted by and Carol and her mother? Maybe they just got that wrong, but spirits are real, just not in this case. Or uh, we talked about the logic flaw before is that you're trying to uh, argue against the reality of something that you don't believe in in the first place. Right. And it's like, well, there's, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, well, that can't happen because, you know, like, I mean, look at Roger, uh, you know, the, well, he was, you know, Roger Patterson was doing this. He was wearing a suit. It's like, there's no case where you would believe in Bigfoot. So what does it matter what you think Roger Patterson was doing? What does it matter if you believe what these folks, the Perones were doing, because you don't think ghosts are real. So getting back to Kenny's article here, it's like, uh, it's just not, maybe not an understanding, I guess, or, or the same point of view as other people looking into these cases that do put a little more weight into these kind of anecdotes. Because as Kenny said in his article, here's the simple truth that this house wasn't cursed with all these deaths because curses do not exist, plain and simple. So that's one point where he's saying uh, that is baloney. I don't know really how he stands about ghosts and all the rest of it. I'll have to listen to his shows, which we, we, we probably will. But what he's saying here is that, uh, well, curses don't exist. That's silly. We all know that, right? Well, I would talk to some people who believe they were cursed. And at some point, it doesn't matter that you could put it out of your mind. Say you, it's the old trope you meet that you insult the, the old Roma lady. She puts a curse on you and it's like, well, that's baloney. I, I, don't, I don't believe in that stuff, so it can't hurt me. And then over the next year, five really bad things happen. You lose your job, your car gets stolen, your house gets broken into, your significant other breaks up with you, and you get laid off from your job. And you say like, well, that seems like a lot of coincidence, like a lot of bad stuff happened, but I don't believe in it. It doesn't matter. It happened to you. It doesn't matter what you believed in. In this case, if these anecdotes are true and they happened, it doesn't matter who died when, at what time, and how old they were, and by what method. 
because I see it this way. There are all kinds of strange connections. From what we've learned, there are all kinds of strange connections. And I look at the case of the Pickmans at the Sally House. And uh, for you uh, critics on Reddit and that thread, and you know what I'm talking about if you listen to the show and you guys contributed, we've talked with them for, I don't know, Scott, maybe eight hours in total. Yeah. Uh, with various people in the family. We've kind of gotten to know them. We don't believe that any of them are homicidal maniacs or crazy people or liars. Scott hasn't read that thread, but I guarantee we read most of those threads, folks. I don't know what happened. I wasn't there with that case of Tony Pickman and the cat, so you folks know what that is. But Tony talked about a strange connection, and this is what I think cemented the Velisca House story for me. Because we learned about, of course, the Sally House first, and then people started bringing up things about the Velisca House that were Oh, yeah, we've never connected. shared this on the air. I think we did talk about it. there wasn't there wasn't much though. I tried to get a more what you're about uh, to concrete. say. I don't remember you ever saying uh, which I'm glad you're bringing it up because I had actually forgotten. Yeah, about it. yeah. I think maybe we did again. It's it's been such a long time, but like there were some intriguing points uh, to me. It's the same house number. Was it five hundred two East Second yeah. Street? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there is something going on there. So again, if you believe any of this at all, if you if you believe that uh, Tony Pickman is not just a knife wielding crazy. Uh, out to murder everybody that, uh, you know, again, you have to look at it coming in and with the logic, I believe of, if you say, well, you know, this didn't happen, this isn't crazy. Why are you saying that? Because none of it is possible or just this instance. Uh, and this is the interesting thing. And I still don't understand this again, talking about uh, people swapping forms, perhaps in a gozer kind of way. Tony claims that he saw this older turn of the century woman I believe in the kitchen of his house, you know, with old period clothing, uh, you know, 1910s or whatever. And he didn't know who it was. It was just this older middle-aged lady. I think she, I think maybe described her as looking concerned. Turns out later on, they get into more paranormal research and he finds out like, oh my God, that was the neighbor lady at the Velisca house who discovered that uh, the missus wasn't out hanging the laundry. Right that something was was amiss. And then I remember the, vaguely the story, she gets somebody else, but she knew something was wrong. And I'm not sure if she had the horror. I believe she did look in or peeked in and that really just scarred her. Somehow, there's, if you believe Tony Pickman, she's connected to the Sally House and also the Velisca House, but nobody really knows why. Well, and just to come back to your point, the Sally House is at 508 North 2nd Street. That's in it. Atchison, Kansas, and the Velisca House is at 508 East 2nd Street in Velisca, right. Iowa. Right. Exact same number, both on 2nd Street. The only difference being one is east and one is north. But how can the ghost from the Velisca <laughs> House get all the way to Atchison, Kansas? She's got to get on a plane or something. I don't know that like you can... <laughs> That can't you have be. to assume that's like, that's no, the, no. That's the point we're going to hang up on, right? Mm -hmm. Coming back to this story, to the Perone family, when you look at the, the encounter, the scariest encounters that Carolyn had with this specter of a being hanging over her bed with a broken neck. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't make sense that that's Bathsheba. Could they have made a mistake in thinking that it was? However, Susan Richardson Arnold probably did have a broken neck. She hanged herself. But yeah. it was six miles down the road. Can her ghost right. not get to the street? Or <laughs> is this just what they're seeing because they're 
they're latching on to what scares them about local lore and this yeah. thing, whatever it is, not only not human, it never was. It's just right. appearing as whatever can get the most rise and the most fear yeah. out of this family. Or it's all made up, every single bit of it. Well, Kenny Biddle's not impressed by the level of evidence. So I do wonder what he would consider impressive. Would that ever be possible? Because I do believe there's a limit. You're not going to get a ghost to make Wednesday and Friday night uh, show appearances at the, uh, you know, at the scientific lounge of your choice on command because that doesn't happen that way. It doesn't seem to be part it's of the It's very rules. much a Michigan J-Frog situation. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's always elusive. So what are you trying to prove here? Because I don't think you will ever prove that ghosts exist to everybody because I believe that's part of the mystery we're supposed to be left with. We're supposed to wonder. Our faith is supposed to be challenged. Or if we have no faith, that's also a challenge as well. To either find it, lose it, get it back. It's personal for each of us. And how we view the world and the world's beyond, or if there is one even. So yeah, I think you can't apply some logic to this to a point because at some point it defies logic. And you're not going to get a good analysis of this and just saying like, well, there you go. It doesn't really fit all these other rules. And then, uh, you know, again, I would say, what rules are you talking about? What logic are you talking about? So now, having said all of that, we're going to share one last story from Andrea Perone's book, beginning on page 251 of the Kindle edition of House of Darkness, House of Light, The True Story, Volume 1, again published in 2011 by Author House and available for purchase at authorhouse.com. And we want you to look at this story through a new filter, not the filter of whether or not this is made up or the filter of how does this connect to real history, but through the filter of knowing that maybe, just maybe, an event similar to the one described here by Andrea Perone actually did happen. And the details and nature of it were never about connecting it to something that happened here on Earth, but more about just scaring the hell out of Carolyn Perone. Soon thereafter, Carolyn experienced the most horrifying encounter she'd ever have in the house. Roger was there. The couple went to bed as usual after the news and slept peacefully through the night. Just before dawn, a disturbance erupted in the bedroom. Carolyn awoke to a distinctly violent vibration in her headboard. Their bed was moving. Disoriented in the darkness, she could not understand what was happening until the room became frigid. A foul, familiar stench flooding the space, filling the air with something toxic, unbreathable. The woman could barely move her body. Her boggled mind was fully alert. The room was suddenly ablaze with light, an ominous fiery glow, illuminated by flames on top of torches carried by the dead. As unbearable as it was to watch, Carolyn could not look away, her gaze transfixed on objects which meant certain death to her family. She expected her heart to stop. This would be their end. So many of them, perhaps eight or ten spirits standing in the bedroom, each holding a wooden torch with something atop it resembling a brittle broom straw, each fully engulfed in a ball of fire. There was nowhere to hide. The house was humming with a reverberation Carolyn could feel in her sternum. It was deafening, loud enough to muffle a mother's screaming if she'd had a voice to use, but the woman knew she'd been muted. 
She yanked on Roger's hair, shoving him repeatedly, jerking the covers from a cold, limp, lifeless body. Again, his back had become serrated, scratched beyond mortal recognition by the claws of a demon. A precise cadence emerged, established by the perpetual pounding of torches striking a wooden floor. This primitive syncopation echoed throughout the house. Their rhythmic chant, a torch song incantation uttered in tandem by spirits who didn't seem to notice the victim cowering in her bed which had been dragged to the center of the room. There they stood, gathered in front of both windows, encircling the bottom of the bed, a small child posted at each side of the footboard. Carolyn's rapt attention remained focused on the fires. She listened to their words, what they had come to warn, only as an afterthought, as flames leapt toward the ceiling. Fire was her enemy, her greatest fear. Beseech thee, leave, afore ye go, beware the flame, the fiery glow. Was mistress once afore ye came, and mistress here will be again. We'll drive ye out with fiery broom, we'll drive ye mad with death and gloom. Mesmerized, as if suspended in some type of post-hypnotic trance, Carolyn stared at this group of lost souls. Appearing as a coven of witches engaged in a ritualistic initiation ceremony. Their language spoken grew louder, shaking the structure, rattling the glass in its windows. The apparitions included two children, a young girl and an even smaller boy. It was difficult to distinguish their features due to the intense glow of flames, a haze obscuring her view. She saw a few of them grinning, as if attending some festive event. An entity emerged from the crowd and began her approach. Carolyn recognized her as the one who'd come before, the same spirit who petrified Cynthia in her own bedroom. She began slowly floating forward as many other spirits continued chanting the incantation, impaling words into her memory. Her movements were tediously slow and deliberately threatening. Carolyn could never mistake this entity's evil intentions. It was reading her mind. She had time enough to run if only her body would allow her to escape. She could not. In complete panic, during the fraction of a second she'd spent considering flight over fight, the bedroom door slammed shut, effectively trapping her inside. Flames leapt up from straw on top of torches, yet there was no heat no smoke in the room. It burned like wildfire, lapping toward the ceiling with every brutal blow, each strike of the floorboards resulting in the torches being raised once again in preparation for the next heavy blow. The drumbeat was relentless, deafening as they stood beside her and still, the demon advanced. An emaciated figure, no hands or feet, snapped at the neck, death by hanging or so she presumed. This time, though, it had a face as hideous as anything she had ever seen. The eyes were black, hollow sockets peering into her soul. The nose appeared to be rotting off. What remained of that grotesque appendage was nothing but a few pieces of decaying flesh dangling loosely beneath a mesh of cobwebs. Its horrid sight and smell caused Carolyn to retch. Its mouth, 
drawing closer to her with each passing moment, uttered these threatening words with pleasure. As this wicked creature smiled, reveling in the terror expressed on the face of its victim, it revealed a set of chipped and jagged yellow teeth protruding from beneath thin, shriveled lips. Carolyn was certain she would lose her mind before she lost her life. None of the others even acknowledged her presence. The spirit crept and conjured around her bed as light of dawn began to break, illuminating a gruesome scene in lurid detail. Leaning over then, in towards its victim, the apparition issued the threat it had come to deliver. With purpose and reason, a message received, loud and clear, was mistress once afore ye came, and mistress here will be again. We'll drive ye mad with death and gloom. We'll drive ye into Satan's tomb. Thus has been spoken, thus has been read. Take leave of this place, or ye too will be dead. Suddenly the bedroom became flooded with thick, acrid smoke, an ominous haze surrounding the emerging beast. Carolyn's aversion to this dark demon was so intense, violent tremors began to erupt through her trembling body, traveling uncontrollably through her frozen limbs. Responding to the jolt as if being struck by a bolt of lightning, she lurched forward in her bed, inexplicably drawn toward that which repulsed her. As Carolyn was about to receive the kiss of death, the apparition slowly withdrew from her, then began to encircle the bed again, floating toward her husband. Arriving by his side, it hovered over him for a moment, then glanced upward, those black, vacant orbs staring through her. Grinning again, bearing its evil along with its fangs, the creature leered at a paralyzed woman while leaning in toward her man. Roger was the one, the recipient of a kiss bestowed. Carolyn closed her eyes. She prayed, speaking words in mind which would save both of them, Lord, be with me now. Whispering the 23rd Psalm, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. No question, it wanted her to observe what it was about to do to her husband. The identical sound announcing their arrival, the combustion of flames in the bedroom, occurred once again. Carolyn waited, certainly knowing fire would consume them all. She could not move her mouth, but instead prayed from her soul. Bless me, Father. Take me if you must, but spare my children. Dear God, I beg of you, have mercy on us all. Her prayers had been more potent than any words the woman had ever uttered in her lifetime, silently or aloud. Moments passed. She dared to open her eyes. Roger turned over, groaning in pain. She peered through tear-drenched eyes to behold the vacant bedroom. Flames extinguished. It was over. They were gone. That's going to wrap up this particular series on the true story behind The Conjuring. We may delve further into this in the future, but for now, we'll be back in two weeks with a new show and topic. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. The letter J. I'm Dana Bruce, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends. The letter W. 
Thank you so much. And this is me recording my name. P-E-R-R-O-N. How's that? Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. Good night.